Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. We're doing a live YouTube post-game show, our second of the week. Um, this is also going to make up the first three parts of this week's podcast. So there'll be more for the podcast as well, so you still have to listen to the podcast as well as this. Um, we've got a packed show and we've got a full house of guests. I'm Michael McCall. I'm Steve Pander. I'm Zachary Adam Eisenhower. I am Stephen Egan. So I, I've I've got some fun props. My lighting isn't great. My connection isn't great. So I'm not crystal clear. But I'll show you what I do have. Naturally, there is a packet of chocolate digestives. Got to have that ready to go. And I feel after that performance, I need a lot of sweet treats. So I've got some Tunnock's tea cakes as well. And... I thought it's after 10 o'clock, it's after dark, so let's not bother with being PC and drown our sorrows with my last Whitecaps beer that the Whitecaps sent me. So we'll crack this open, we'll get drunk, anything goes now. Yeah, I don't Well, the season's over, you might as well crack the last one. Michael, was... the, uh, the, Whitecaps, the Whitecaps didn't gut the fish, but uh, tonight I will be, I'll be eating some fish. Excellent. And, and Stephen, I was so looking forward to introducing this as the Seattle Sounders end of season special. It doesn't look like that's happening, but have, have you brought any special treats with you to, to share? Oh, let's see here, Michael. I have a Rainier with me to celebrate three points in the Emerald City. Finally, Cheers. Seattle on the board in Orlando. Cheers. Woke up at six in the morning the other day to watch them lose to Chicago on two abysmal defensive errors. And I hey, have to tell you, that was Thursday. That's a horrible start to your day, man. Just, I swear, anything's better than that. Wake me up with a bee sting first. Just anything. <laughs> and uh, my my little treat for everybody is that I put together a little video of uh, uh, Whitecaps scoring against Sounders in games that they actually got a result in. Oh, so this fantastic. is all, this oh. goes all the way back to Hasley. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a different kind of video that was coming up there. Oh, no. oh we can do our so you can just, this. You can just keep, keep watching this. Watching this as it goes on, so it'll be about it's about a six minute video. It'll road go back and forth. Can, so we can continue I, with the talk of this game, I guess. No, I'm fine just to sit and watch this. It's like it's better than talking about the game if we're being totally honest. But I guess we are here to talk about the game. So let's start by just saying where the land lies right now for the Whitecaps, which is very unsteady. 
They're bottom of Group B. They've got a goal difference now of minus four. They've got zero points. But thanks to the wonderful San Jose earthquakes and that strange 2-0 victory that, that they had earlier tonight, the Whitecaps are still alive. To, to quote, I, I know that you guys are, are big Star Trek fans because you're always talking about Star Trek. There's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Or not much of it, anyway. They, they need a big swing uh, in the, the last game against Chicago, so we'll talk about that. But, I mean, first of all, let, let's just go around the room. We'll, we'll, start, we'll start with our guest, Stephen. If you were marking the Whitecaps on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give the chances of making it out of this group and being in the knockout rounds? Oh boy, out of 10, 2. I'm going to have to give it a 2. I, I, you know, it takes, a, it takes a goal on a set piece and, and just absolute perfect play at the back and a, and a real tight 1-0 win against Chicago and then a lot of help, right? No, they can't even do that. They can't do that with a 1-0 win. They have to win by 2. Isn't enough. Yeah, they need at least they 2 to, to overtake yeah. Chicago. Is it 2? Um, so it, it, t- tougher yet, maybe it's down to a 1 then. It's just, you know, I, I think they have to do it on set pieces probably. I just don't think there's a lot happening from open play. And uh, unless something really wacky happens, it's, it's going to take just a, a stellar defensive performance to, to even have a shot. And you got to look at it too, that the, uh, uh, the, the Chicago... Um, they're kind of they, they've had a great performance against Seattle, uh, but not obviously didn't get the result today. How are they going to be? It's the third game in, um, but they're kind of used to playing, I guess. Now in the morning, did they play? Yeah, they, play against, they played against uh, one Seattle. game in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of used to that, so they have an idea of what's going on. Whereas Vancouver, it's going to be their first time in the morning, and that'll be totally different. I was just surprised that Stevens had two, two out of ten chance. I thought that was like crazy high, like really optimistic that yeah no I, there's no way that there's no way that they're beating chicago by two or more and and, and getting one of the third place spots especially with the injuries <laughs> yes well the new injury but we'll, we'll come to some of that we'll come to the chicago game as well when we, we delve into things a little bit later if we look at the group though i mean did anyone fancy san jose to go through never mind actually win it I I, I I could have seen them going through, but uh, topping, no. I, I thought they, because they didn't have very many changes, I think, over from the year before. So they're, they're a team that probably has the least amount of changes. And and the fact that they, and I didn't know this beforehand, but I didn't, I didn't realize they had gone in there like two weeks before. And that's a huge advantage to be in there two weeks before everybody else or most teams. If Their they, if, core is significantly better than it's been in years past, I think, or, you know, as they've, as they've evolved under Almeida, uh, you know, uh, Judson's a, a really solid player. Ewell had a great game today. Uh, I think Alanis really holds the whole thing together for him. And they've got a few solid attacking pieces with Vaco and Husson. And then, of course, Wando's still Wando, right? And, and when oh. you put it all together, it's just, it's so much more coherent than it's been before. And Almeida, or, yeah, excuse me, Almeida, he really is top class, isn't he? And, uh, you know, I, I think just uh, having his, his direction on everything has been so important for them. Uh, and now they're getting the results from it. But I, I certainly didn't pick it myself. I do miss his hair. I don't think he looks the same with that short hair. But let's, let's talk about Wando, the man with the oversized jersey. A minute coming on the pitch, putting the ball in the back of the net. I mean, that's a luxury super sub, I think, 
every team in MLS would love to have. But what what a guy. It's just fantastic stuff. Yeah, he's our Freddie Montero, essentially. Yeah, that's what Freddie could have been for us, Stephen, in this tournament if he'd, if he'd made the trip. That's what I was hoping for. But, I mean, Wando, it just doesn't show any signs of, of like easing up, really, does he? He has five goals in two games uh, against Chicago now. And I, I just I found this out in the last game that he was available in two expansion drafts. And I, I had no idea that that was the case. That's amazing that nobody decided to pick him up. Ah. You a big Wanda fan, Stephen? I mean, he has just torched Cascadia for so many over the years. I can't even count how many tweets I've put out recounting his goals. Uh, it just, it's constant, you know. It's, um, it's been an omnipresent fixture in MLS from the time that I started watching the league until now. And uh, I think it annoyed me for a long time. And, and as I've gotten older, I've just come to appreciate how great he is and what he adds to the league. Uh, and the fact that he's done it in San Jose, where, you know, I mean, outside of a, outside of a brief window in 2012, I've just suffered from you know obscurity almost the entire time but he's he keeps scoring so yeah i i I like like steve's video is fantastic it's like we've brought a guest on from seattle and we're trolling him by just showing his team getting ripped apart but i guess no 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 no. i'm sorry michael it's hilarious because the deal is is like in half of these games seattle still gets a result despite what's going on in the background well if i had done just wins it would have been that many goals it would have been a shorter video. I was going to say, you've got the last laugh anyway because of tonight. So we'll, we'll get to this game very soon. Last thing I just want to, to mention about that San Jose-Chicago game is it set everything up perfectly for the Whitecaps. I thought Chicago would win, and I thought that was going to mean that if the Whitecaps didn't win tonight, they'd be bounced from the tournament. But San Jose's win meant that, barring a heavy defeat tonight, which you could argue whether 3-0 was a heavy defeat or not, the Whitecaps were still in with a, a fighting chance of going through. And I, I I don't know if that would have affected MDS's game plan a little bit going into it, knowing that they could maybe attack a little bit more or or risk trying to get some goals. But he went for a no-change starting lineup. Owusu, who we thought was going to be out, turned out to be fully fit. Well, fit at least, and he started the game. Were you surprised by by that? Did you expect some changes? Yeah, no. I, I mean, for me, I thought it was a, it was a weird case of same ingredients, dis- different recipe, but ultimately a, a very very poor dish. Um, yeah, he just they just tried to, to shuffle things around, um, right? Just moved uh, uh, moved Milinkovic to the back further on the right side, kind of put Russell out wide left, but sort of tucked in with Ali overlapping him and it it wasn't enough to to shut down Seattle's uh you know quality designated players uh, who uh you know create much of if not all that they have going forward so, sorry Russell was playing in this game oh, oh my god okay i mean Steve they went 442 that's afterwards, uh, just on MDS's post-game presser there, he said that is basically what this team is built to play. Didn't really look like that. No, not in that case. And the thing is, the the reason why is because they still didn't have that uh, that wide player. Like, they had to move one of your wide players, the homie, in, into the middle. And that leaves where you're talking about Russell Tiber, who started out like that in his career on the wide and mm. then switched to the middle. And but didn't have anything in this game, so uh, they need a better. I think it would. 
you, you could talk about this lineup, but maybe four four two would work if they had all their players in there. Uh, yeah, because it, you're missing all those strikers, and then you, you have Reina and Hidomi that, that could go out wide then at that point. So I think it would work that in that case. Now, Stephen, when I saw Seattle's lineup, it looked the strongest starting lineup they could have put out there. They had all the big guns in. They had Morris starting, Rui Diaz, Ladero. It looked that Schmetzer was going for it from the off. He wanted to get some early goals on the board. That's what they ended up doing. But when you saw that lineup, is, is that how you thought about it as well? Yeah, I think pretty much uh, Schmetzer had kind of tipped his hand a bit in an interview a day or two before uh, where he mentioned a, a lot of what was going to happen, that Yaimar uh, Gomez was, uh, excuse me, Yaimar Gomez Andrade was not going to be available, uh, that Shane O'Neill would play, uh, that Handwala Buana would get significant minutes. Um, and so I think that was the one that probably outsiders might look at and be a little bit surprised at. But Buana's been really solid for Seattle, and I think he had a good game as well tonight. Uh, but I was most interested to see that the Whitecaps were playing a flat 4-4-2. Um, that didn't really make a ton of sense to me, to be honest. I haven't seen a lot of people have success doing that against Seattle. Uh, you know, they're playing 4-2-3-1 with the two different lines in midfield, and they just combine so well in the center of the park. You just, you have to have bodies there, and they can't can't all be in one line, just static in two blocks of four, right? Uh, and I, I think that was a death sentence from the offing. Yeah, I think as well that Seattle cottoned on pretty quickly. The The best way to attack was going to be up the left, their left, the Whitecaps right, and that, that's where a lot of the danger was coming from. Jordan Morris was just like unplayable at, at times out there. But it, it was a fast-paced start by both teams, and it was going back and forward. Both teams had their chances in the opening 10 to 12 minutes, and you thought, oh, this is, this is going to be a good game. But you did also think as well, as soon as Seattle do get a goal it's going to be tough for the Whitecaps to get back into it. And that's when you look back at these early chances that the Whitecaps had. And I know Seattle had them as well, but you're kind of ruin ruin the chances that, that the Whitecaps had before that first goal. Don't know if it would have made a, a, a great deal of difference, but it, it was a promising start. I mean, that first 10 minutes gave us a bit of hope that if they can keep that going or try and get that going against Chicago, we might get something thought there was some good combination play down the middle in particular and it made me think that you know the, the forward combination might even work uh for a moment I thought Reina in particular had a good first 10 minutes and then that Milinkovic shot the way that he was able to just skip past Nuhu that way uh it was dangerous and for all of Seattle's attacking spark and creativity that they came out with they looked susceptible on the back end and and there were chances there was there was space for Vancouver and and I think you're right. I think I think that opening ten minutes, that's the best the best stretch of the entire game, best look for Vancouver comes in there. And the failure to convert there probably is the ultimate issue. Yeah. Well let, let's get the first goal. Penalty. It's the new rules. If the ball hits the hand in the box, it's gonna be a penalty. Kimiri didn't know too much about it. But I mean, it was going to be a penalty if it hit the hand. I think it was a bit harsh giving him the yellow. I think that is in, in the new rules, though, as well. But it was easily drilled home by Ladero. And I think Cripo sold himself a little bit early in it. He kind of really telegraphed what way he was going to go down. So Ladero had the easy job of, of slotting it home. And anyone not think it was a penalty? I think it was a little harsh. I thought, I thought they were... I didn't feel like he uh, exposed his arm outwards. I felt he was doing his best possible to keep it in, as you can see the, by the picture. I brought photographic evidence to this. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, 
uh, he didn't like take his hand outwards. He was more. He was keeping it in as far as in. Yeah. I thought the rules were that if you made yourself bigger, I don't feel like he made himself bigger. I felt his arm was he was trying to keep it as tight as possible. I saw it in a different game too, where they were doing something like that, where it, the player tried to keep it as close as possible. I think it was the Colorado game against Sporting Kansas City, and he tried to keep his hand in, and then uh, 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 Ganter called it a, a foul on that one too, a penalty. Yeah, that's Ganter. We'll come to him in the third part. I thought by the rules, Michael, it's a, it's a penalty. Yeah. yeah, his hand isn't super extended, but even the picture you you got there, Steve, that you sent. I mean, his hand is out is is out enough, and according to the rules, the ball touches the hand. It's it's a PK. Like I, I don't know, we've already seen in this tournament lots of people and commentators talk about how uh, their issue isn't necessarily with the person, the ref on the field, or the VAR people. It's with the rule itself. And so you can say you don't like the rule, but I think the rule has been implemented the way it's written. So I don't see this changing until IFAB or whatever decides that maybe, hey, this is, uh, this is not what they want. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about this a lot in the past, Michael, about how, how many players will look to just play the ball off the arm when they have the opportunity, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that would be the case here. But No, it was fired in, though, at, at some force. I mean, there wasn't really much you could do about it. I did have a discussion on Twitter, though, about players nowadays. They always turn away from the ball instead of just letting it kind of come towards them. It's a natural reaction. I think it, it is hard not to do that. But, I mean, Ladero took the penalty really well. And after that, Stephen, I mean, you, you must have thought, oh, well, that's it. There's no looking back now. After the second one, it was hard to see away. You know, I think that's the one where it kind of ceased to be a competitive game. But yeah. just to touch on the penalty just quickly, you know, I thought there was that partial update to the rule where uh, if the ball deflects off of one of your own teammates and then hits you, that they'd be more lenient towards that type of oh, thing okay. when it's accidental. Oh, but, and so I was, I was talking about it with, uh, with the ref account, with the MLS ref account on Twitter, one of the, not the official one, but one of the fan ones. And uh, they were saying that it, it, the, the only explanation is that it's that his hand is making his frame bigger there and that it's in an unnatural, mm -hmm. the hand is in an unnatural position. But I, for me, I thought it was really awfully harsh. I, I, I thought it was, thought it was harsh and I'm absolutely with you. The yellow card's over the top for it. I'm not yeah. really sure what he's supposed to do about it. I, that, that kind of, and for a guy like Kamiri, uh, who, who t he likes to dive in and tackles, getting that yeah. yellow card early, that kind of negates the way he plays too all the time. Like they, they did a review, but they didn't go to the actual screen, right? So the VAR people didn't even recommend a review on there because it was so judgmental yeah. on there. Yeah, I mean, they, they thought it was fine. But, I mean, it, it did look a long way back, even at 1-0. But when it got to 2, it certainly looked like a long way back. But, I mean, that goal, just one of the many things that I thought Jordan Morris did fantastically tonight, Stephen. He was my man of the match for the Sounders. The way that he played against Nerwinski and Kamiri up that wing, he just had the beating off them all night. And with the goal, he pounces on the loose ball, he makes the run, he receives the lofted pass... Great composure. Norwinski can't barge him off the ball. Buries it nicely. Where's that Jordan Morris been in the first two games, sir? Geez, you know, I think it's taken him a minute to get his fitness. Uh, you know, he's diabetic. I, mm. I think uh, that's that's probably a factor for him. It's been hotter than heck in Orlando. Um, whatever it is, he certainly had it tonight. And man, he looks as you as you mentioned earlier, borderline unplayable uh, when he's at top speed. Combined so well, not just with Ladero, but with Rui Diaz as well. And I mean, you know, just could do it all. Was cutting in and taking shots, was getting to the end line and putting in cutbacks. Uh, he 
he ran the whole show for Seattle, I thought, maybe even more so than Ladero normally does. Well, the I think the difference between Morris in the first two games and this game was that he wasn't playing the Whitecaps in the first two games, <laughs> uh, especially the back line. But I, the, the second game, wasn't he a sub? He came on for a half an hour or something yeah. like that? I, I think thought, the, he, yeah, he came right. on, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. like, Rui Diaz didn't look very good in, in the first couple of games, and Ladero didn't look great, Morris didn't look great. Tonight, it's like something clicked. Although, and like I know Steve's partly being funny, but he is right. It's like they're playing against a Whitecaps defence that afterwards, and we'll talk a bit more about what MDS said afterwards, but I wrote down what he said in his post-game presser. He described the Whitecaps defence as incredibly unstable. Now, that's damning, damning words from your head coach. And he says that they basically they have to get to grips with this. And if they don't, then they've got no chance. Yeah, a, a couple of things. J, uh, Jasser Kamiri uh, has not looked good at all. Uh, many people have been commenting on this in the you know MLS's back tournament. His uh, playing these two games has not been good. Um, I also think that Jake Norwinski uh, was really really poor this evening. Uh, he his his ball behind Owusu is what started what led to this goal. It was a poor yeah. pass. Owusu then takes a heavy touch because it's behind him, and then it kind of hands it to Seattle, and they, they march on the other way. and And Nowitzki can't recover enough to, um, you know, to 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 really trouble um, uh, Jordan Morris. I didn't th- I didn't think he looked good. If I can just share, Michael, too, this is something uh, Jonathan Pink Pinkney uh, was talking about in our comments here. He says, "Can you guys discuss how clearly Schmetzer seems to have the Caps?" Uh, beat tactically every time they clearly target Jake at right back and then let the caps have the ball in non-dangerous areas so like yeah I think the way Seattle went at Jake was I think I think I would agree was intentional interestingly the TSN commentators said that they thought Nervinsky was the white caps best player in the night and I was like well well, they, right? they changed they, they change it up afterwards saying that other than his mistakes he was the best player <laughs> uh, which I don't know how you, how you can do that um uh, the biggest thing about, like, I, I know tactically you're saying that, but for me, this the Whitecaps have never, and I know the players have changed and everything, ever since that Robbo uh, playoff game where they didn't really, they played to, you know, not to lose. Ever since then, the Whitecaps have never had a great result against mm. the, the Sounders. It's, it seems like, I don't know if it's mentally got into the uh, media and the supporters and the players are just, you know, not good enough, or it's kind of like dwelled into the players too over time. But it's odd the way that it's been like three years since they played the Sounders well enough to win. I mean, Stephen, is it fair to say that Schmitzer just has a reading of the Whitecaps? Because I, I was on his his pregame call on Friday or Saturday. Friday it would have been. And I was surprised that he revealed some players that would definitely be starting. Like he confirmed Ariaga was going to be starting. And like just to come out and say, yeah, he's going to start. This is going to do this. He was very open as if, He's like challenging the Whitecaps. This is what we're going to do. It's up to you to somehow defeat this. I, you know, I, I want to be clear that I mean this is objective analysis. Um, Schmetzer has had some impressive tactical victories, some impressive tactical successes the last three or four years. Uh, none of the most five or 10 or 15 most impressive have to do with beating the Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, just not it's not it's not at the level of what he's been capable with uh, capable of you know you look at what Seattle did at LAFC last year in the playoffs where they just turned it on that's that's you know 
insurmisable. You couldn't figure out how anybody could possibly come up with that with the team that he had compared to LAFC. But Vancouver is at square one every time Seattle sees him for yeah, you know, that's the last three years since, since the playoffs, since the playoff series. And I, I think you're exactly right, Zach. You know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if it was Zach or Steve who mentioned it. You know, Vancouver played not to lose against Seattle in that playoff series, and it's never looked right since. Um, and it just, you know, I don't think Schmetzer has to think about it very hard. I don't, I, I think mm. he, I think he sends his team out there and says, roll the ball and watch how it goes. And I, and I think it works for him every time. It was Steve, but he was speaking for both of us, but um, seriously though, like the other thing I think uh, uh, Steve just said is, is that the, I mean, the, the, the thing that can be undermined here is just the gap in the quality of, of players, the, the, the gap in the investment in the squads, like, it's clear like from another today is another example of it obviously Vancouver's in a special situation where they're missing even you know some of their better players but it's yeah the gap is huge and I don't foresee that ever for it ever being returning to a place where it feels like there's a bit of a balance and a bit it's a bit of a like a, a challenge like maybe back earlier in you know even you know in the early days of MLS uh it's always going to feel like it's going to take the Whitecaps to play out of their skin to beat teams like Seattle. Well, another interesting thing that Schmetzer said on that call on Friday was he said that one of the proudest things he is of this Seattle team, Stephen, is that no matter what the odds are, they find a way to win. They find a way to get the job done. They did it tonight. They didn't have to maybe move out of second gear or third gear too much, but they did what he said. They got the job done. Well, don't, don't get me wrong, Jordan Morris is a skilled player and he, he did a lot of very skilled things on the field tonight, but he also just straight up wanted it more than Nerwinski did on that side. Mm-hmm. And I think you could see it. He just, he, he out-hustled him the whole time. And, and that's not to suggest that Nerwinski can match him for pace. That's not to suggest that it isn't a structural failure for the Whitecaps every time he gets matched up one-on-one on the wing with him. But that being said, I mean, he did. He just got, he got out-hustled by Morris repeatedly. And, you know, I think the first 15 minutes of the second half, you could kind of see how this was going to go, where it was just like, oh, boy. Yeah. You know, every time Seattle touched the ball, it's a diagonal ball in behind, and it's a chance. And it just, there wasn't an answer. Well, the Whitecaps had, I think it was 60, might have been 66, but I think it was 60% possession in that first half. But they had no bite, no attacking threat, one shot on goal. And the final third, it was just, as we've seen too many times, was a place where attacks went to die. At that point, you were just hoping that things wouldn't get too out of hand, it wouldn't affect the goal difference, because otherwise we'd have to score an absolute barrel load against Chicago, which you still feel that they are going to have to do now to, to get through. Could they turn it around? Could they change things in the second half? We'll talk about that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. That was this week's song by this month's Artist of the Month, Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine, with the fantastic Lean On Me, I Won't Fall Over. A single released in August 1993 reached number 16 in the UK charts and was taken from their fourth studio album, Post-Historic Monsters, which was released a month later. We've got one more week of cartoons to come. Hope you've enjoyed them so far. But let's get back to the football chat now and back to looking at the aftermath of the Whitecaps against the Sounders. So the second half of Seattle and Vancouver. We only had to wait six minutes for a Sounders third. And after me moaning so much and talked to MDS about this in our conference call during the week, about unmarked players in the six-yard box. There's Rui Diaz, unmarked, just ready to, I want to say a tap-in, but he had to do a little bit more than just tap it in, but not much. But, I mean, how do you let a guy like that just unmarked in the six-yard box? Um, It's mind-boggling. And and they were saying that they were doing, like, a, a hybrid zonal man marking today. Uh, That's what they were saying on the broadcast. Um, I think the confusion was definitely clear there that they were doing the hybrid. I I can understand how he could slip in because he's basically the smallest player in the box, but still you can't, you have to pay attention to the, to the guy. He's so dangerous in and around the box, outside the box, everywhere. So that's the one guy you really have to pay attention to. If you're going to do like a hybrid man marking zonal thing, that's the guy you want to man mark. Yeah. So, so far in our first two games, we've left Wondo, Andrew Diaz unmarked in the six-yard box, Stephen. Well, I mean, just, you know, such an uphill climb to begin with. One forward on the roster down there. How's it going to work when you're giving up, you know, corner kick goals on unmarked set pieces? It's just, it's it's incompatible with taking good results. Well, it's, it's not even it's not even leaving Rui Diaz unmarked. It's the unmarked man at the near post on the, the, oh, the header yeah, to begin too. with. Like it, it, it's sh- it's shocking. Like that, you can allow a near post header like that on a corner at, at this level. Like that's just like inexcusable. But I mean, when when I spoke to Mark about it during the week, and he said, "Yeah, you want to talk about the two goals we let in from the corners, but we defended twenty of them really well." And it's like, yeah, but you gave away twenty-two corners. At least positive from tonight, there was not twenty-two corners. We've got to take what that we can. That is impossible. Yeah. Yes. Because we'll rattle through the rest of the game. We'll get to folks' comments. The big, big talking point, really, for the rest of the game came in just a couple of minutes after Rui Diaz's third, 54th minute. Buana, Cripo, clash in the box. Not intentional by Buana at all. He went for the ball. Max, just unfortunate, gets his hand under it, gets stamped on. Looked like he got hit in the stomach as well, but it seems to be the hand injury that ruled him out. MDS was asked after the game if he'd had any updates on him, and it was a very short answer of no. No, he hasn't. So it's not looking good because they had to cut the glove off, but, I mean, Zach, he's the one guy last season that was the shining light. If you lose him now, we don't know what there's going to be for the rest of the season. You don't know how long he might be out for, but... It's just they can't catch a break just now, except in this case they maybe have caught a break because it could be his hand that's fractured. Yeah, I mean, when you watch it, you it, you think that, yeah, that's got to be what's what's happened. Uh, otherwise, it's very badly bruised. But 
Uh, yeah, my guess would be that he has some kind of broken bone in there. But, I mean, yeah, the play, there's nothing wrong with the play. And the player's going for the ball. Max is going to win the ball. It happens. Um, but, yeah, in terms of the Whitecaps and their, you know, the, the possibilities for what, you know, even the Chicago game, just thinking about that. And then, and also thinking beyond that, it, without Max Crapo, I don't know that uh, there, there's too many people who uh, can see them getting much out of, out, of, out of the Chicago game without him and, and beyond that, doing much without him. I mean, you know, Meredith's gone, uh, presumably for the Chicago game, and then who knows what's going to happen after that. So I don't know, like, who's, the third, who's well, now the backup keeper? They have got the fourth keeper, Isaac. I can't remember his last name. Isaac's the fourth keeper, but I Isaac don't Jacob. know that he's down there with them or not. He's not down there. Uh, the one, the one positive is that uh, 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 Zach's medical diagnosis is usually off uh, because he had a Wosu, he had a Wosu, uh, out for the season from the last game, and he played quite a bit of minutes in today. So uh, that's the one positive about Mexico we can take it. Another one is that. Thomas Sassel came in and he showed a lot of poise in that yeah. one play he did against Rui Diaz. But um, you can, like, I didn't know, I don't know what his voice sounds like, but. Oh. You heard him. Uh, when, yeah, the one of the commentators was saying that, who, who's he? I'm drawing a blank because I haven't seen games in a long time. Uh, one of them was mentioning that uh, uh, Paul Dolan. That's <laughs> Paul Dolan. How <laughs> can you forget Paul Dolan? <laughs> I forgot, it's in my mind. Uh, Paul Dolan was mentioning that uh, he could hear him on the pitch, like shouting out. And he said that's one of the hardest things to do for Young keepers is, is getting a hold, and he was, seemed to be getting a hold. I, I thought he did excellent. The double save. I was a bit surprised, though, Stephen, that Seattle didn't really try and test him a bit more. But by that point, do you think Seattle had kind of just switched off and they thought, job done, let's not waste any more energy than we need to? Yeah, this is one of my theories about soccer in the bubble. With the home crowd removed, it's taken away the incentive for the home team to entertain. Hmm. That's, that's yeah, and we could get uh, because I was checking over some of the uh, tables. I'm sure we'll talk about later, but we could potentially see some East Germany, Austria type games um, in the last round. I asked Axel during the week, um, like if teams knew what it was going to be like going in. Was it going to be like West Germany and Austria in the 1980 Oh, it was West Germany. Yeah, uh, and he said he tries not to think about that. I told him it scarred my childhood, so. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the game, not too much to talk about. MDS made five subs. That was a positive. Reyna, well, there was a few chances for the Whitecaps late on. Reyna had a chance that he blasted over. That In the back of my head, I still think we don't have a great chance of going through, but there is still a chance. And you have to think, if one of these chances had gone in, that, in the grand scheme of things, for, for goal difference, might have been massive. I think it would, I think they still would have had to win by two, if they, even if they got one goal in. Oh, yeah. Winning by two just now, I don't think, makes a big difference, because I've looked at the, no. the standings. I mean, depending on how many games get drawn in, in, out of the last games and stuff like that, it, I think they're going to need three or four to get through, because I don't think a minus goal difference is, is going to do it. But, I mean, it feels to me, Stephen, that these chances that they had late on, Seattle had switched off a little bit, and they had to take one or two of those, I think, to be in with a fighting chance. So I, I think here's the revisionist history for me you can go over. is you can say, first off, there's the Uwusu header 
on the free kick in the first half that we didn't yeah. talk about, I think inside oh, yeah. of 15 minutes, oh, yeah. Very good that's, point. that's the most important chance of the game. I, I'm sorry. I totally, totally missed it earlier, but I mean, that, that is a free header with fry on the opposite side of the goal. If that's on target, it's in the back of the net every single time he's got to cash that. Right. So let's say Wusu hits that one. Let's say that white caps don't give up a free goal on a corner at the start of the second half, just out of nothing. And let's say that Reina does get the one in the mid-80s. That's 2-2, and you get a point. Yep. If the Queen had ball, she'd be the king. Yeah. And that's, uh, I was expecting that, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's very true. Uh, as a, a once-wise man used to say, fine lines. It's fine lines. <laughs> if we're looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly, from the white caps, and then we'll get Stephen to do our good and bad, the ugly for, for Seattle. If you're looking at the good... I'm saying Thomas Hassal and just it showed something good. And I thought Ranko as well had another pretty solid game. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the bad was just the general lack of creativity in that final third until really late on. But the ugly was also that, but also the way that Morris just ripped, ripped him apart up that side. Yeah, I would say one of the good was the 66% possession. And then I would say bad is the 66% possession and the getting no goals out of it. <laughs> yeah. Zach, what's your good, bad, and ugly for Vancouver? It was all ugly. I, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, what, seriously, what good can you take away from that game and that performance? Like, I, don't, I don't think anything – there's not, nothing positive. D- does that uh, mean you're, died not, on the pitch? you're not giving us I'm a sorry. man of the match? I get well. I guess Tom. <laughs> I guess Thomas Hassel. Thomas Hassel. How do you say? Is it Tom, Hassel or we've always said Hassel? But then um, I heard think that it's Hassel. Hassel. Oh, okay. Well, Thomas. Yeah. Thomas was the only bright spot, and uh, yeah. So he, yeah, he's the good. The bad was everything else, and the ugly is Max Crepo's uh, hand. Oh yeah, yeah. It's kind of sad that your good thing is a, a young homegrown guy coming on because your main player gets injured and has gone out. But anyway. Stephen, if you were doing a good and bad and ugly for Seattle, what would you pick? The good's pretty easy. Jordan Morris getting back into form, looking great, uh, looking like a top attacker in MLS. The bad, uh, from, from a Cascadian perspective, I love it. But from the Seattle perspective, it looks like the Sounders are headed for either LAFC or Portland in the knockout round. And I believe that is going to be a tall task for them either yeah. way. Uh, the ugly is the center back situation with Ariaga potentially concussed with uh, the shot he took to the head late in the game. O'Neill appeared to pull up a little bit as well. We're not sure if he's good. And then with uh, Jaimar Andrade, uh, Gomez Andrade already uh, a bit injured, it looks like Seattle could have some type of center back pairing like Svensson Delem or something like that. Uh, kind of odd stuff coming up for their knockout round game uh, with their back line. Steven, is it, is it bad that I had. The ball to Ariaga's face is one of my potential highlights of the game. (laughs) You know, I thought thought it was nice that Reyna, like, literally the second that it happened, he's not worried about where the ball's going. He's not worried about, is this going to create a Whitecaps chance? He's like, he's going over to Ariaga and encouraging him to sit on the ground and, like, trying to get the ref to stop the game. And I just, I thought thought it was a nice moment of sportsmanship and as a guy who covers all these teams at the same yeah. time, it made me feel warm and fuzzy. I, 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 I was disgusted. I think that's, that. That, yeah, I think that's what happens when you play a Cascadia match like halfway across the continent. 
you're not going to have that same uh, anger and, and, and venom at, at each other. Yeah, you, you don't have the Whitecaps fans saying dig a hole and bury him. Yeah. Talk it off like... Well, and no, no matter what happens... No, sorry to interrupt, Michael. No, no matter what happens, nobody wants head injuries, right? We all want to come out of the game. And you know, we don't want to see what happened to Kripo happen. We don't want oh, head yeah. injuries. We want, you know, we want, we want to uh, have great rivalries, but not uh, life-threatening. Yeah, we don't want any more that. people ending up like Taylor Twelman. We, we, should, we, should tell, we should tell the Whitecaps that Seattle wants a great rivalry. But like, talking a ball to the face, and you might wonder where I'm going with this, but ex-Whitecap Jose Aha took one straight to the face for Minnesota in one of the games. And afterwards, I don't think I mentioned this last time round, but afterwards, Adrian Heath was asked about it. And it's, it's like, he looked like he was concussed to have come off. And Heath goes, no, he's from Uruguay. They don't have concussions in Uruguay. Not the best medical advice, I thought. I'm just going to quickly go through the stats because I've just looked at them just now and I'm actually a little bit stunned by some of them. The Whitecaps had more passes than Seattle and better passing accuracy than Seattle, including 44 more passes in the final attacking half. And more, and they had seven more passes in the final third. I was watching a different game. I can't, wait to see JJ, I can't wait to see JJ Adams' heat map after this one. <laughs> oh. But it just shows you that stats don't, don't mean everything when it comes to special yeah. teams like football. Yeah, well, the Whitecaps only had two shots on target uh, in the whole game to Seattle's seven. So, I mean, there, there was that. What was, the X, what was the XG, Michael? I don't think I see that here. That's all bollocks anyway, if you ask me. But anyway. <laughs> Steven, set them straight on XG. Uh, you know, does XG count in Orlando? Is, is it the same there? Is there some type of, like, multiplier you have to, you have to factor in with that? I the Orlando multiplier. test results, yeah. So... Before we get any further, let's get into the chat because I see that there is a lot of chat questions. So I'll just rattle through some of them. I've been trying to answer some of them there, Michael. As we oh, go. cool. So uh, Andrew Chobaniak says it's over. We should all give up on everything. That's morbidal, right? Yeah. Morbidal. It's morbid. I don't know about morbidal, but yeah, it is morbidal. Mike Gom says we can't seem to play at night. How could the morning be worse? Find out Thursday at 6am on TSN. Uh, Will Silver asks Steve, is that a Pentagon Junior mask? It is. Pentagon Junior. Paul Pedersen says, the Caps are playing for the first overall pick in the draft next year. I think we can do it, except it won't be the first pick because Austin coming. So it'll be second pick. Are they, are, are, aren't they delayed too, or are no, they not delayed? Austin's, Austin's coming in. It's Charlotte, Sacramento, and St. Louis that are all delayed by a, a further year. Uh, let's see. Andrew Chobanik again says, when did Wando start? Was he at Swan Guard in 2004 with the earthquakes? He remembers Landon Donovan being there. That's before my time. I was here three years after that. Were, were you there for that, Zach? Uh, no, Michael, he wasn't there. He joined 2005. Ah, okay. Navid Masinchi says, seriously, the game looked like men versus boys. Can't disagree with that one at all. Jonathan Pinkney says, the difference between how the Sounders kill games off against us compared to how we let San Jose keep pace of the game high until the end is crazy. That, that's the difference. It's like the top teams know how to manage games and that's been a problem of the Whitecaps for many years now, guys. 
Was there a moment outside of the first 15 minutes where Seattle wasn't in total control? No. I mean, even in that first 15 minutes, it was back and forth. So, I mean, Seattle could also have had about three or four goals in that first 15 minutes. It could easily have been 4-2 if all those chances had gone in, but they were in control from first kick to, to last. I mean, even the, the offside goal three minutes in, that should have set the alarm bells going for the defence because I can't remember, I think it was Ladero, it might have been Rui Diaz, but whatever one of the two it was, just waltzed his way through the, the Whitecaps defence before squaring the ball to Boana, who put it away but had been offside before that. So, I mean, that was the early signs three minutes in that Seattle just had the beating of this team and the, the taking of this defence. I mean, geez, they'd produced an end product one time in 180 minutes before that, and then three minutes in, you've already got the ball in the net. Yeah. Whether it counted or not. I was doing the Raphael Wiki uh, press conference upstairs, so I hadn't got the game, so I had just finished, and I came down, and I looked at my telly, and I, was, I said to my wife, is the ball in the net? Have they scored already? And then I, I didn't know what had happened. I was like, this is going to be a long night, and then I saw that it was offside. But uh, a question from Will Silver, is the new car smell off MDS? I think it's been off for a while. I think the, the for that first season, for a lot of people, it was off. Um, I, I, but I the problem, the thing is with him is like, he's not that he's making excuses, but he constantly has these excuses being given to him. It was like um, Robo like always said, for, I'm not one to make yeah. excuses, but, and then came out with all these excuses. But but here these ones are more legit. Like especially mm. this tournament, you lose like five players right off the bat coming into yeah. the thing. Your backup goalie is out, uh, leaves the leaves the bubble and is out. It's probably not going to come back at this point. And then you have uh, a couple of injuries during training, and then you have your starting goalkeeper and your MVP from last year go down in the you know fifty sixtieth minute of the of game two. You you basically are. Uh, he's been giving being given excuses, and I don't know how you could fire a guy who who's gone through all this stuff th- over the last couple of years. I don't think he's anywhere close to getting fired, but there are a lot of fans who have been very. Well, I think the fans want him to get fired. Fans are looking to, for him to go or or get rid of him or something like that. Yeah, some are. <laughs> yeah, lots of fans are asking this or talking about this in the places that they do. I, I, you're not, this is not going to be surprising for, for, for you, Stephen Michael, but the problem with the Vancouver Whitecaps has not been their, their coach's uh, ability as a coach or tactical approach. It's been their, their willingness to invest in their squad. And when you, you think back to the Robo era and you think back how Robo used the language of, we need all of our players playing at their level or above you know, to really, to do well, to achieve. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Robbo got his players to do that. I think a lot of what we saw in the Robbo era were when they, when they were doing well, it was because everyone or virtually everyone was playing at their best level or sometimes above that. And, and I think people saw that and they thought, oh, the, the Whitecaps as an organization, as a football club, are in a, a much, like they're, they're doing really well. And they thought that that should be the standard or they thought that they, that should be the minimum and they, the Whitecaps should be able to kick on beyond that. And, and it's very, very clear to people who've been around long enough or people who understand or people who have seen a little bit behind the curtain that you can't keep doing that. It's not replicable for players to continue to play at their top level yeah. or be on themselves 
on an ongoing basis, especially in a league at, at league like MLS, and especially when you, you you know your top players are you know you know barely at well, like at one and a half million dollars, and you only have like maybe one of those. And so um, that's I mean that's what's going on here. And so anyone who wants to attack whether it's MDS or Robbo or even Martin Rennie, uh, attack. I mean, you, you can have Tommy Sohn all you want. Or even Tater, but those four guys. You want to attack any of those those four guys? They're really the the deck that they've been given is limited, and and so the the deck is, st- is stacked against them in the game that they're playing. So the, only the, ownership can choose to help change the situation, and we know that's not changing, and it's not likely to change. And what's going to have to happen is going to be them unearthing some players like a like you know Alfonso Davies or whatever who they unearth. Uh, they you know the brought in from Edmonton. Or it's going to take um, Axel Schuster bringing in some people from Germany or from Europe who are diamonds in the rough or who want to come on a loan spell and, and, and play out of their skin uh, because they want to put, you know, push on to somewhere bigger and better, that, that, that Vancouver is going to have a chance to be even semi-competitive in the long run. Otherwise, people need to understand that what, what we're seeing, even in this MLS's back tournament, is more what they should expect in the long term from this organization. I, I disagree with that. And like Stephen, you won't probably have heard MDS post game, but like he got a bit prickly with a question from from JJ where he said, What can we read into to what you've got with this team just now? And a, a lot of folk are saying, Oh, they're making excuses for the players that's missing. You can't get away from that. If those players were there, this is a different White Caps team. And I mean, you're like neutral in in this, Stephen. It's like you you have to say that if those players are there, you've got a different kind of game. To an extent, I do feel you still have to get them service, and I don't think it would have mattered who was up front for the Whitecaps tonight. If they're not getting the ball, they're not actually going to do much with it. But that aside, you you can't read anything into the the team that's there just now because they are missing so many key pieces. Six or seven of those guys probably would not be starting, I, I, I feel. I, I've been wanting to ask you guys, do you think it was fair of MLS to, to have Vancouver play in this tournament with so many guys missing? I mean, MLS needed them for numbers. They yeah. are losing to other sides. There was no way they're going to drop down to 23. But uh, also, it's like, that's what you No, 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 no. And, and I get that. I, I understand the logistical aspect to it. But I mean, selfishly now, for the Vancouver Whitecaps as a fan of this team, was is this fair? Would you rather watch this? Would you rather watch going, going from 3-1 up against Earthquakes to 4-3 down and then losing 3-zip in a derby where you're not very competitive? Is that better than just saying, you know what, if Cavallini and Montero and Ricketts and so on and so forth can't go, we might as well just sit at home? I I don't know the answer. I just I'm asking the question because I think it I think it might merit discussion. No, I don't. Th- I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think it would, they would have been taken out because the difference between Nashville and FC Dallas being taken out is they had rampant positive tests, whereas the, uh, uh, Vancouver were getting people opting out or something like that, yeah. opting out or Ricketts point where it was he was forced to be opt out or whatever. Like the 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 doctor in charge said that you shouldn't go, or Andy Rose, I think same thing. So I think I think in those cases, I don't I, I don't think it's unfair for MLS to expect the Vancouver to come because other than that, those five players or six players that didn't come and who never none of them tested positive, so that's not the reason why they didn't come. The Vancouver's been very clean, so you know what? You come, you do the tournament, you get some playing time in there. 
you might as well get some in there. We did none of us really expected them to do very much going into the tournament. We were hoping that you know yeah. with FC Dallas, uh, maybe they get something because all their players were falling apart. So I thought maybe we play a B team against FC Dallas, maybe we competitive that game. But then we get Chicago coming in. That that changes everything. Then at that point. if you if you look at the the biggest complaint that I saw after the first game was there was a big argument. Fans were saying, well. Play the young guys. Why are they not playing the young guys? I don't feel this is a tournament. And in that, in that San Jose game, when you're one goal up and you've got a team pressing to get back into it, why are you going to bring on young guys to give them their MLS debut? You need to see that game out. Ultimately, they didn't. But if MDS had played the young guys, they'd be like, why is he bringing the young guys on? They couldn't see out the lead. So he can't win in that regard. And I think going into this last game, if it had been meaningless, folk would be like, just play all the young guys. But MDS has made it clear he's wanting these regular season points. So no matter what this last game, if it stood for anything or not, you were always going to get as full a strength of team as possible. Yeah, but Michael, in the last game, though, here's the thing. Uh, the, the game against San Jose... Yeah, you don't have to bring on young players for the sake of bringing on young players. However, you need to react, I think, a little bit better when your opponent brings on four brand new fresh players with, yeah. with fresh legs who very clearly are running, running you ragged. And it's at that point, it doesn't matter if they're young. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, you take the next best player who can contribute in whatever position and you bring them on because you need some fresh legs. And so I think that was a fair criticism in that game. And in terms of, you know, what I said in terms of what the trajectory of Vancouver, like last year was a, was a part of that, Michael. The, the team was awful last year, mm. uh, even with, with, I know, half a team that maybe MDS wanted and, uh, or the third or two-thirds of the, of the team he wanted and a third he didn't. But, like, the, the trajectory is not going up. Like, that's, that's the thing. I, I don't think anyone can look at this and say oh, the trajectory is up. Uh, even though, yes, in this tournament, they're missing significant players. Yeah. But to answer Stephen's question, like, I, I don't think most, pe- most parts of the, the, the Vancouver fan base don't see MLS as viewing, the, you know, what they, how they engage with the Whitecaps as being fair in, in general. But um, I do think there is a segment of them who would have said, hey, if Vancouver wouldn't, was, wasn't there, we would have been fine with that. Uh, you know, yeah, I, home, I agree with that. They would, yeah. They would avoid, they would avoid potentially being, uh, you know, uh, more, uh, be able to come more in contact with the virus, you know, if they could stay home and avoid it. And most people would have been, I think, fine with that. There were a few people who would have not been super excited, but I think a lot of people would have been like, hey, we understand, we're with you. Well, as I tweeted after the game, MLS is back, but I'm now starting to wish it wasn't. And we got a comment in the, in the chat from Gordy Parento, who says, David Norman Jr. would have looked good out there. But that's none of my business. Sips tea. Yep, David Norman would have looked good out there. Sadly, he's injured just now, so he's not able to even be with Miami there. But yeah. Uh, Gordy also says that it describes the Caps' entire MLS existence. They're just there to make up the numbers. Fair? So far. Right. Let's quickly finish off this part by looking ahead to Thursday. Now, it's maybe not as huge a game as I thought it was going to be at the start of kickoff because they do have a, a big, big job ahead of them. And as things currently stand, they need a two-goal swing to overtake Chicago. But even with that, looking at the other matches, they'd need a lot of help. The advantage is they do 
go into the game knowing exactly what they're going to need to do, it's just kind of hard to, to see them doing it. From the two games that you've seen of Chicago so far, I thought they weren't very good defensively. I think there is a lot of hope to take from the, the goals that they gave up today. The first goal, like defensively, Chicago looked shaky. The first goal today, they looked shaky on the ground. The second goal today, they looked shaky in the air. They weren't picking the man up. They weren't good with pace. And you look at the Whitecaps, Stephen, and the Whitecaps have pace. Raposo, Dahomey, Bear, Milinkovic, possibly not a lot of pace, but he's got the skill. These are guys that, from what we've seen from Chicago so far, they have the potential to take advantage of them. And, you know, I think they're going to be those few moments in the game where Whitecaps get the big looks, where they get the big chances, and they certainly did against Seattle today, like we talked about with Owusu and with Reyna. Uh, whether that would have been enough tonight is debatable, but against Chicago, they're going to get some of those looks again. I, I, I bet they're going to get at least a few of them, and it comes down to can you finish? You know you're not going to get as many of those moments as your opponent is. You know that you're, you know that you're just not going to be able to go toe-to-toe all the time, and so when those big moments come, You've got to take them. You've got to score. If that big chance comes for Uwusu early again, it's it's got to hit the net. And it's just, you know, I, I, I think uh, an early goal, a lead of some sort could, could you know, do wonders for confidence. Um, I, I understand 3-1 wasn't safe against earthquakes a few days ago, but, but still, I mean, look at where we're at right now. Just any type of positive sign, I think, might be met by some type of positive response. Um, but it's just, you know, you're, you're going to have to play really tight all the way around, right? You know, yeah. score a goal on the counter, score a goal on a set piece. Um, a penalty would help. A red card would help, right? Uh, but it's just got to be really tight at the back, and it has to be really, really clinical with whatever chances you create. The, the other thing is Chicago don't look as deadly up front as, see what San Jose have and what Seattle showed tonight. They've got Berich, who's... He looked good in the game against Seattle early on and kind of dropped out of it. Tonight, he wasn't really at the races. Sapong, I thought, started off tonight's game really well. As I said, I, meant, I jumped on the Raphael Wiki conference call after the game just to kind of see what he said. So I jotted down a few of the things that he took away from the game. And he said that they need to learn to be clinical. Uh, they need to be more concentrating on set pieces and what they're doing in the last 30 yards. He was frustrated by San Jose's aggression. So if the Whitecaps want to try and get under their skin, show a little bit of aggression, not sure we have the players, though, that, that's going to be able to do that. He wanted the team against San Jose to keep the ball more, and I'm wondering if that's what the game plan is going to be against the Whitecaps. He also said, though, that sleeping well, eating well, recovery and using his roster for this last game is going to be the key to get anything out and that his message to the team is to keep steady emotionally. He feels the effort was there today, which I didn't. I thought they they looked, apart from the first 10-15 minutes, they looked quite flat. But he, he seemed fairly confident that they could get the job done against Vancouver. I would think he's more confident after this watching Seattle play. Yeah, because that was that was before that performance. But for those of you listening on the podcast, I'll play just a little bit of, of Rafa Wiki's uh, post game press conference comments for you just now. I guess just what's the takeaway from tonight's match? Uh, what are some of the lessons learned, and and how can you apply them 
uh, going forward starting Thursday morning? Well, uh, it was the expected difficult game, uh, hectic game. I think the lesson is that uh, in these games you don't have 10 chances, you have a few, you need to be clinical uh, through uh, open plays or through uh, pressing and winning the balls and then or, 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 or um, set pieces when you have a few you got to be I think more concentrated and and, uh, and and be better in the last 30 yards to to actually then take advantage of the game but otherwise it was a expected hard game physical game lots of challenges for the most part of the game we were well we were well organized um, which is a good point but uh, yeah um, overall, I think it was too hectic and we need to try to be more calm with the ball. The team started so strong in the first 10-15 minutes, but then it seemed to get a little bit flat. You've got such a short turnaround to this next game. How do you feel you're going to lift them for this game and get some of the energy levels back? Yeah, it's true. We started very well. I think we started very very aggressive and pressed them high and made their life difficult because it's a, it's a team which has a lot of possession normally and we were able to steal some balls and, and make it hard. Um, we knew it's not possible to have 90 minutes. Uh, normally then you should keep more of the ball yourself so that your opponent runs and I think yeah, we were not able to do that uh, good enough to keep the ball, to keep them running. Um, but yeah, we have now... Uh, three days, three and a half days, and it's it's uh, it's a short turnover for for all the teams who will play. So it's about uh, sleeping well, eating, recovery, and then uh, and then be ready again. And yeah, we have a roster. We need we need all the players. Just looking forward to next game. Obviously, you guys still have your destiny for the knockout stages in your control. So at this point, what's your message to the team about not just you know taking care of themselves off the field between now and Thursday, but just kind of mentally where you want them to be at knowing that you guys still control your own destiny in terms of your future in this tournament ah, it's important to keep your heads up I mean it's a football game we lost a football game today um, we, we won one the last time you can be when you win on the top and when you lose on the bottom so you, you got to keep uh, steady emotions and and it's a football game we're going to stand up again we're going to keep working we're a good team we had good moments today. It's a tight game, uh, very tight, with, with, with few details who decide the game. And uh, um, that's the message which I'm, I, will, I will give the players. The, the effort was there. The effort was there for 90 minutes. And, um, and that is very positive. So now we have to recover and um, we're going to be ready in, in the next game. I fell in love again. All things go, all things go. Drove to Chicago. And that is pretty much it for this part. Quick prediction before we wrap this part up. Score on Thursday. I'll go 1-1. One, one. I'm going to say 1-1. One, one. I think they'll get a, a result in this game. I'll, I'll, I'll give Zach's prediction. It's going to be 2-0 Chicago. Close. Steven, do you want to go or should I go first? I, I do have 2-0 Chicago, so Steve got me. <laughs> okay, I, was gonna, I honestly was going to say 2-1 Chicago. Yeah, so not a, not much hope with us. Let's hope we're proved wrong. I'm not sure I'm even going to get up and watch the game. I, I actually, I put a poll out about that earlier in the week. I haven't got it up here just after I checked that. I forgot all about that. And the three options were, were you going to watch it live? Yes. Only if there's something to play for or no. And the biggest thing with about 43, 44% was no, they're not going to watch it live. And then, yes, they will watch it live, was also 40-something. 
and 16, 17% said only if there was something to play for. I probably will get up. I'm just not a morning person, as I've mentioned before. Anyone else here getting up to watch it live? Well, if we're doing a show, then I will get up and watch it. If not, <laughs> maybe not. Um, yeah, that's me too. That If we're doing a show, then I'll get up. Otherwise, I'll watch it on delay. Steve, so it's your call, Michael. There is something to play for, Michael. It's There's three league points. Stephen, you getting up nice and early? You know, I did it once for Chicago, but I, I just want to say here, you know, li- living on the West Coast of North America, the only time we should be getting up at 6 a.m. to watch one of our clubs play should be if they're in the Club World Cup, and that is that is absolutely it. If I'm doing that again, it's for something a lot more important than an MLS league match. Yeah. I'm thinking of not watching the game, but then getting up just in time for MDS's post-game presser and getting the first question and going, I haven't seen the match, Mark. Can you tell me what happened? <laughs> that would be I, awesome. I wanted, we're going to talk in the next part, about some of the other matches from this tournament, but the KC uh, Colorado thing, I tweeted out that I wanted my first question to be to Robin Fraser, Dave Ganter, discuss. So <laughs> I got into the, the press conference and they sat down and they didn't know the mics was on and Fraser says to, I can't remember what player it was, he's like, do not talk about the officiating, not knowing that it was on the mics. So then I raised my hand to ask a question and they never picked me to ask a question. Was gutted by that. Also, Robin Fraser, very grumpy man. One of the other questions I was going to ask him, someone else asked, and I'm glad I didn't ask it because he nearly bit his head off. But anyway, we'll come to talking about that in the next part. And for those of you listening to it on the podcast, we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Maxim Kripo from the Vancouver Whitecaps and you're listening to the EFTN show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. And kicking off our first of our three of a kind tunes tonight is a song by a legendary Canadian punk band. They started off life in Edmonton in 1981, moved to Vancouver in 1992. That was the song Tears by SNFU taken from their third studio album, 1988's Better Than a Stick in the Eye. Now that song kicks off tonight's Three of a Kind section, as I mentioned, for any new listeners to the show, or for any of you that just need a a little reminder. At the starts of parts three, four and five, we're going to play a song, and each song is going to be linked in some way. Your job over the next three parts is to work out what that link might be. If you have worked it out by the end of the second song, Can you try and guess what the third song might be that kicks off part five? But the reason I played that song Tears by SNFU wasn't just to kick off this week's Three of a Kind. 
it was also to pay tribute to lead singer Ken Chin, Mr Chai Pig, who died this week, aged 57, after a long illness. Sad loss to the Canadian punk scene, an absolute legend in the punk world. Rest in peace, Mr Chai Pig. You've left a great legacy behind you. But let's get back to the football chat now. One thing I meant to mention actually in the last part, when you talked about getting up early for games, the World Cup schedule in Qatar. 2am, 5am, 8am and 11am games on the, the West Coast in the group stages. But I have a feeling that the games that we would probably want to watch, they'll probably uh, they'll probably schedule it so that uh, a lot of our games will be... Oh, hello. A lot of our games will be probably that late, those later ones, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, probably. The European ones? Well, I, I don't know. Can't guarantee that. Yeah, she hey, got up. Does, so I thought I'd make well get her on. Score? Does Penny what? Does Penny predict scores? No, I've tried. She's no interest in football. She takes that after okay. my wife. I, I've been worried that you've been hearing her panting in the mic the whole time. So if you do hear heavy breathing, it, it is her. It's not me because the light in here is terrible. And I actually have a spotlight on me and her just now. And I am melting. I, I'll show you my top I'm wearing. It's my... 1996 East 5 3rd Strip, Tartan. We wore this against Man United. Lost 4-0 against a team that had Beckham, Skulls, all these top guys in it. I've told this story before. Outside the match, I, ha- I was selling fanzines and I went to give one to Alex Ferguson. I went, there you go, Alex. And then he signed it and gave it back to me. I went, no, it's for you to read. And then I gave him another one. I have a feeling he probably didn't read it. You kept the autographed one, though, right? I've still got the autographed one, yeah. That's good. I'll sell that when he dies. <laughs> I thought I could have sold it last year, but that didn't work out. Anyway, let's get into the MLS tournament chat. General thoughts, lads, from what we... Uh, good beer, this. General thoughts, lads, of what we have seen so far in the tournament. It's been batshit crazy this week. No team it seems Stephen can defend in MLS right now. Yeah, it's weird. You know, I just, um, you know, 30,000 foot view. I have a hard time judging anyone in the bubble, anything that goes on in Orlando and taking any of it too seriously, you know? And it seems like some of the analysts, particularly on the national broadcasts, want to want to make something of the performances, want to want to extrapolate some trend from March to here and that kind of thing. And I just, man, I think this is such a crapshoot one-off. You know what I mean? I think I think the the probably the game that probably displays that the most is the uh, the one um, where Atlanta lost. I think it was to yeah to Cincinnati. To Cincinnati, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the one that really encompasses that. Really, that you can't really take too much out of this tournament at all. No, Cincinnati's well, I mean, that, another that, I mean, team that haven't got that haven't let me ask questions. The last couple of conference calls have gone on as well. I don't know if it's after my Alan Koch interview or not that Vinny was quite critical of them. Maybe they maybe they heard our uh, our, our like uh, talking about their culture or something mm. like that on our show. I'll give you an example real quick. Uh, the Seattle fan base is freaking out about Ariaga, who they just brought in last June. Right, was a designated player when they got him. Is now just on a on a TAM contract now that Joao Paulo is here. But they're saying, man, this guy can't defend. He's 24, right? He's 24. He's been out of Ecuador for less than a year. Started in the game where Seattle knocked out LAFC at LAFC and then MLS Cup again 10 days later, right? But but apparently because after several months away, 
and then a shortened second preseason because Ariaga made two mistakes in a game against the Chicago Fire at 6 a.m. Pacific time, he is no longer the future center back for the Seattle Sounders. Go figure. I, I would love him just, to stay. That just doesn't in the hold water back. for me. No, I, I think he should be center back, definitely, because he seems dreadful. He should play every game. <laughs> I, you know, don't get me wrong. He's he's had a tough tournament here so far, but I mean, man, the guy's already got one ring. True. If you want to talk tough tournaments, have a word with Jasa Kamiri. Let's look at the Canadian Derby on Thursday. TFC Montreal. It's as if they thought, okay, we we watched that game the night before. We can do better than that. That was it. Wasn't such shit defending to to be fair that that you saw in the the Quakes Vancouver game, but it was a it was an entertaining derby, and I think the the main turning point was Montreal letting TFC score seconds after they brought it after the penalty. Right. Yeah, I mean that that's a killer for the team, and I've I've been on a, a couple of calls with Montreal this week, and like Thierry Henry just. He, he doesn't really know what to do with his team right now. He kind of sounded a little bit dejected today when when I heard him actually talk. After the first game, he, he felt he, he felt he wasn't getting the passion that he wants to see. Yeah, And after all his, like, uh, the way he uh, coached the Monaco, it's surprising that he hasn't been able to um, get Montreal, uh, the, the impact going on the right track. Uh, I mean, when you talk about this, this tournament, you, you, one of the things that, you can't you can't talk about it without talking about the people who aren't there, right? So in Vancouver, it's very obvious there's significant multiple significant players who are not there. But then you also like yeah, Martinez isn't with Atlanta, right? You got uh, what's his face at the Goats too. Uh, Carlos Bella. Bella is not there. There's a number of players who are not who are not there, uh, which I think not maybe not taints the tournament, but it definitely shapes people people's perception of it. Hmm. However. Also, in a, a tournament like this, with all its foibles and weirdness and and crazy kickoff times and all that, you do have a few interesting and positive and, and meaningful stories coming out of it. And 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 the, and Toronto, Toronto is one of them. And Akinola and oh, his yes. uh, goal scoring prowess, you know, both against DC and against Montreal, is one of the the highlights or one of the more significant and interesting things that's, that's happened. Not just and also, it's not just on the on the field. That's it's he's been exciting it's the the potential off-field drama in terms of will he stay with the u.s will he yeah. you know choose to play for canada or will he maybe decide you know answer an email from nigeria and and, and go there um you never want so, to answer yeah, emails yeah, from nigeria yeah don't do that no do that. <laughs> i'm glad you got my joke there okay so but no i i uh it is probably has been the highlight of the of the of the tournament in my, in my opinion is like he's been the star, and he's been a great, ta- a great talking point. And um, you kind of, I guess, you just hope that he's able to, whenever the season resumes or when next year starts, that he's able to, you know, kick on and and keep going. If not at the crazy pace he's going with five yeah. goals and two two games, but some somewhat of a regular scoring pace and be able to, you know, continue to develop as a professional footballer. I think as long as Herdman confirms that he's not going to play right back, I think he, there's a very good chance he'll play for Canada. I think that that's the, that's might be the tipping point right there. I mean, what have you made of Akinola, Stephen? I mean, right now he is an American because he's been capped at youth level. He has said that he's open to whoever he plays for internationally. Canada, there's a kind of story that was on on Twitter earlier this week that Canada hadn't 
treated him very well. I hadn't made overtures to him, so that's why I ended up at the US. I mean, I guess you wouldn't have seen too much of him, but but what have you seen from, from these matches? And I know, going back to what we said, you can't read too much into this little bubble atmosphere, but he's looked fantastic. I think, to be clear, it's fairer to read into people having explosive breakout performances than it is to to read into people having some type of, of negative performance, right? Where a guy, you know, makes, like, you know, once again, back to Ariaga, makes a couple mistakes, doesn't mean he's not going to have a successful career in the league. Um, to be honest, I haven't seen a ton of Akinola yet. I've focused most of my attention on the Western Conference. Uh, but, you know, I think with guys like Bradley and Altidore on the same on the same club there, um, it it makes it an interesting uh, proposition for him um, living living in Canada, but having these American stars on the team with him. And uh, I just, I to, to be honest, I'm sorry, I don't I don't know him well enough mm-hmm. to know. I uh, ha- haven't heard his particular comments on the matter to have a gut feeling one way or the other yet. What is exciting to me, and it's like obviously I'm not a TFC fan. Is can you imagine him playing up front without a door? Like is that twosome with Persuela a little bit further back or something? That's like a deadly, deadly attack. Yeah, if if they could make it work tactically, yeah. Yeah, because uh, they are kind of similar, bust, big bustling style. What one other thing I do want to say is, probably back 2014-15, I was a little bit critical of Greg Vanny. I wasn't sure that he was the right man to lead TFC, and we talked about it on the show. But just over the last few years, he has impressed me so much. And... Just like listening to him talk in his press conferences and I've been fortunate enough to get to ask him a couple of questions over the last few weeks and he, he's a he's a great guy. I, I think, I mean, could he summon Stephen that you could see possibly leading the US national team at some point? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, he's done terrifically well in his time there so far and, uh, you know, anytime you see a young promising coach like that come through the pipeline, um, I just don't want to repeat of the Tata Martino situation, to be honest, or we've got a great coach in MLS who we let, who we let get away. Hmm. Right. Let's move on to the, for me, the match of the tournament so far, which was KC Colorado and just the craziness that went with that. For Colorado to get themselves back level, I actually let out a, yes, when, when they tied things up after everything that had happened, it was just a natural reaction and then I felt so gutted for them when KC went on the other end and scored. But it meant Johnny Russell got a win, so I wasn't too too unhappy. But th- for me, that was the game of the tournament. Any disagreement on that? And like, what did you make of it? It was just, it was one of those matches we've seen Dave Ganter before, especially in Whitecaps games, ruin matches. For me, he ruined that match. Or did he make it more exciting because of the comeback? Oh, well, there's that, yeah, there's that aspect. I, 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 that was one of the few matches I've seen in this tournament. So I would, <laughs> by default, I would say that it's the, probably the more exciting one. Obviously, I know, I know Vancouver lost the game, but you got to say the San Jose Vancouver game was pretty exciting um, uh, compared yeah. to the other ones. Uh, the way he went back and forth and everything like that in the comeback. Uh, but the one that, uh, was shocking to me was the uh, the Galaxy uh, LAFC game six two. I didn't I didn't see that result. I, I thought LAFC would win, but four goals from Rossi. You guys are talking about Carlos Vela not showing up for the tournament. He they can afford that when they have a player like Diego yeah. Rossi to take over for him. That was also, Bradley Wright there. Phillips has looked good. Yeah, he he looks on 
he looks like he kind of returned to form a little bit, especially the goal against the, the Galaxy, just uh, how he just, you know, so almost toyed with the defender before placing it, uh, you know, so perfectly in the bottom corner or in the far far side of the net. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the the Colorado-Kansas City game, Michael, had these different different kinds of sparks. So, like, I think – I think for the dramatic flair, Steve's probably right. I think the San Jose winner against Vancouver, it might be the best ending to a game or most exciting ending to a game. Um, but, yeah, there were different kinds of sparks in that um, the Kansas City-Colorado game. Uh, the sending offs uh, and the, the drama around that. And then, like you yeah. said, the, a team in short coming back to equalize and feeling like they were getting something from the match was – was really exciting and then their their hopes were all kind of dashed at the end and i'm opposite of you because in that game i'm feeling for kai kamara i'm feeling for mm-hmm. for uh nico mosquita um you know i'm really really excited for them and then you know really 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 sad for them the, the sending off for the the colorado captain it was just he just ganter didn't like a word he said or something yeah or it was like it? he swore at him and he's just like right you're off yeah yeah see i, I agree with you in terms of gantar i don't think he my impression of him is he's not a referee who does really great at the man management of the game, you know, and I think he had kind of like, you know, at that point in the game, he'd already lost control of the game, it felt like. And it felt like it was, that was his attempt to kind of restamp his authority on the game. And it, I think it just made Colorado players even, even more angry. Um, but, yeah, I don't think he's a, a very, very – I don't think he's a quality ref. Uh, yeah, you know, I just think in those games, in those four three games, and the in the three two KC Colorado game, that th- those are the moments where the sterility of the environment is is uh, most noticeable. Where it's just this, you know, weird kind of twilight zone situation where there's nobody there to react to this strange stuff that's going on, yeah. and it's just it, it it makes for odd viewing. To be honest, I don't really know if I have any more to add to it than that. Yeah, I mean, the, the LA Derby was a bit of a surprise as well, just because of the way, well, kind of in the way that the Galaxy defence just crumbled, but these are two teams that really, really need to relook at where they're allocating their money. It's fine having all this attacking talent if you're not going to have a defence. It's like you're not going to win an MLS Cup. That's where Seattle's done so well over the years. They've had attacking strength, they've had exciting attackers, but they, they build their defense good as well. Yeah, LAFC, uh, the goats there, they, uh, I, the Walker Zimmerman thing, obviously, we talked about in the past about, you know, selling him so close to the beginning of the season mm-hmm. and not allowing yourself time to actually replace him. But then also in this tournament, they're missing someone else or someone else is injured, right? Because uh, our another good friend, Canadian international, Dian Yakovic, is starting, and that's more than surprising. But I, I, I thought they had another starter injury. anyway, was he not there? No, no, no. A couple no. years no? ago. Oh. A couple years ago. Yeah. Hmm. He's not a, I, but he doesn't have the pace to start anymore. One one thing I want to look uh, talk about looking forward though, like you know how we talked we should mention this about the West Germany Austria thing. The one the one group to look at that is uh group uh, which one is it? Group E, where Columbus and Atlanta are playing on the Tuesday. Atlanta gets a win, and you got the next day Cincinnati and the Red Bulls on three points each, where they could play to a draw and, and knock Atlanta out of the tournament. I just oh. wanted to mention that one because I didn't, I didn't see it in the rundown, but I want I, that's the, the Tuesday Wednesday game. Those, those two games are I'm really looking at keeping an eye on. Oh, that. interesting. 
Yeah, it's nuts yeah. how they're doing this. Last, last but, thing in this little bit, just I said on Wednesday, Columbus have impressed me. They still have. Any other teams stand out for any of you guys? I think Portland and Gal- uh, LAFC are two teams that look good as well. Portland looks great. Of- mm, yeah. A lot of people talk about Philadelphia as well. Is it, uh, you know, um, I felt they're yeah, opening they've been goal. a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I keep I picking them for MLS Cup final for the yeah. last like three, four years. So maybe one time they'll actually do something. Uh, Orlando, obviously, they got the home home. Even though everybody's in the same bubble, uh, still their home area. So I guess you got to put them up there too. Talking actually about Portland, I thought this during the game. Like I have really enjoyed listening to Gio Savarese on the touchline. And when Caleb Porter was with Portland, it was quite easy to hate Portland. They're rivals, but Caleb Porter, really easy to hate. Having Gio there, it's hard to dislike them because he's he's so likable. They're gamers with him at the helm. I mean, man, they just they play hard. They're savvy. They're tactically very sharp. They can do a lot of different things. They can show you different looks. He experiments really well with different lineups and with different combinations and uh, finds different things that work, different modes of play. And uh, I, I think he's really one of the sharpest minds in Major League Soccer. And, and I think that with Portland also, they probably got more motivation to stay in the tournament longer because of what's going on in Portland at this point. Uh, oh, yes. So they, they, they want to stay there, there as long as possible so they don't have to come home. So one last thing we're going to chat about tonight. This was a question that was posed on Twitter uh, by Ryan Burns at AuthenticMe13. So we were chatting about a few things last night. And it surrounds the decision to not let the Toronto Blue Jays play any baseball games in Canada because of the border restrictions. So they're either going to have to bow out of the MLB season, which they're not going to do, or play all their games in the States, which Buffalo has offered to, to be their home. So... If this doesn't change, obviously it's going to affect the three MLS teams. And for me right now, if things weren't to change, you've really you've only got three options. You've got the fact that the three Canadian teams don't play another MLS game this year. The three Canadian teams play all their games in the States, which means they wouldn't even be able to come over the border because they'd have quarantine and stuff, so they'd be away from their family for months, potentially on end. Or the third option, there isn't games in the home market. Garber wants 20. What? What's that? Oh, actually, we, we've got Don Garber oh. just coming <laughs> on the show just now. Oh, you're just waiting for that, weren't you? Just Don Garber. Hi, hi. What, what's that, Don? Yeah, I'm he's, surprised he's, it took this long. He's telling, he's telling me what his plan is for the season. Yet they haven't made their mind up yet. I'm not going to say that. That's rude. No, no, I, I agree. That, that's that's fair about Caleb Porter. Doesn't Michael look like the Scottish Mr. Dress-Up anyways? Anyway, Don's just told me that those are the three options, and the third one being there could be more tournaments. What's your thoughts on that? Maybe, maybe the fourth option, maybe they join the CPL for this season. He's had no talks with the CPL just now. <laughs> Surprised he didn't play a clip of him saying that, Michael. You better be careful because you're almost like you're almost hugging him. So just be be careful. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting if they're not allowing the the Blue Jays to uh, 
not allowing the Blue Jays to, to play games at home. Uh, you can't see them allowing uh, MLS teams to play uh, unless something changes, and I don't think it's going to change quick enough for that to happen. So, uh, I, and I, and I mean, when you talk about just if you think about just about Vancouver, think about what what's happened to their squad playing games in the states right now. If they're say if they're saying the whole twenty home games are happening, let's say in Seattle, or you know. Like the U.S. like the the like the residency teams in in Whatcom or whatever Whatcom County, like I don't I don't uh, I don't see that going well uh, or being received well by the Vancouver players. Um, At least they got so, good coffee. Sure, but like can no, you? Freddie you know, Montero, Freddie Montero, coffee. Yeah, right. Can, okay, so maybe he would actually play then if it was in if it was in you know in 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 uh, Washington State. But I, I yeah, I don't. The, this it doesn't feel like they're going to be able to get a meaningful season in. I I don't think there's I don't think they're going to be playing home games like uh, the the once uh, like baseball for example use baseball baseball there people are, the players are socially distanced in baseball where they're like That's far true. away you can avoid that whereas um a, a, like a, like American football and I think soccer I don't think those because the players are so in close to each other. I think eventually you'll get a lot of testing like going on where more people will get COVID on the teams. Just look at FC Dallas and Nashville, for example. And I don't, I think those two, those kind of sports will not work. Whereas sports like baseball, golf, uh, NASCAR, for example, another one, those ones do work because people are apart from each other for during the competition. I think that's the big difference there. There is something ironic yet entirely self-consistent about Canada managing its outbreak of the coronavirus much more effectively than the United States, yet Canadian clubs being the ones who are going to be excluded from upcoming competition. So, yeah. I, I, I genuinely think there'll be another tournament. I don't think there will be games in the home market. I think there'll be another tournament, maybe September, maybe October time. Their version of the Apertura Clausura kind of thing. I, I don't know how that's going to work, but I, I could see that happening. But going back to Ryan Burns's tweet, after we were discussing that, he said, my mind is more now on not will they play and how will they play this year, but more what does this expose about how football has operated, the weaknesses in that, and how to potentially be less of a house of cards and more a properly sustainable business, which, like or love it, is the reality now. And you have to say, if this continues... If there's second waves, if there's third waves, if fans aren't getting into the stadiums or if fans aren't getting into the stadiums in full numbers, not, maybe not MLS, but not necessarily not MLS, but across North America, across Europe, there's going to be a lot of football teams in a lot of trouble and it is because their business model relies so much on money. You know, my simple answer to you, Michael, is that the unfortunate reality is that Major League Soccer owners possess far more greed than they do brains. That, that oh. kind of sums it up. <laughs> oh, Don's left at that. He's disgusted by that comment. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. It's Football nowadays, it's a business. Like it or not, it's a business. It's very different over here to what I grew up with, where you've got community clubs. But even in the UK and Scotland, it's like it's getting a lot of the clubs are getting away from that. Like my team is five are getting more involved in their community. It's actually fantastic to see. They've penny pinched for years, but now they're 
their prudency has put them in a really good position. So they're not in the potential trouble that a lot of other clubs are. When you look over here, when I was doing conference calls at the start of all the, the coronavirus stuff, it was surprising to hear how many teams actually said that the bulk of their revenue comes from fans through the gate. And when you think about that, considering all the other money that's existing in expansion fees and stuff, that's very worrying if we don't know when fans are going to be back. Because USL started it, it's gone off, we think, without a hitch, but there's been some teams that aren't letting fans in at all. And there's been things with folk not wearing masks or not social distancing. But if this keeps up, the landscape of football in North America could be very, very different come 2022. I think the teams that are really relying on are the teams that own their own stadium. That's the ones that really rely on 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 mm-hmm. on, on the ticket sales and the people coming in. Um, some teams they're leasing out and they're probably costing them more doing that as well. So it'll be interesting to see which teams get more affected. Is it the teams that spent more, or is it the teams that were very frugal? Are they the ones that could be okay after the, all this? I mean, Stephen. From your knowledge, how much do the Sounders actually rely on gate receipts for their income? Because obviously they get fantastic crowds. They're also always one of the top in terms of jersey sales and in terms of of merchandising and all that as well. And they get huge sponsorships compared to what most MLS clubs are dealing with. But I just I think the the point overall for the whole league is there's so much revenue sharing going on anyways, right? Is that MLS as a whole just fails consistently uh, to, to look beyond the, the near-term payday, the short-term payday, to anything in the intermediate or long-term. And I think it probably comes from this, this hand-to-mouth mindset that the league grew up with in the 90s and early 2000s, but that just really doesn't make sense for where we're at financially now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, hopefully, we're not looking at the worst-case scenario. Things are going to get better. Just with how things look in the US just now, I can't see the Canadian border opening anytime soon and I can't see restrictions lifted for teams. So that does put the Canadian teams in an awkward position. And you can't ask these teams to go and play a 20-game season down in the States. Even if you played two games a week, you're still getting your them to go away from their family for maybe three months. That's just not acceptable. And if the player said no, I'd back that 100%. Yeah, me too. That's pretty much it then for the video part of tonight's show. Just a couple of uh, last little messages from the chat. The Walkers said prediction of 3-0 to the Whitecaps and that the only team who appear true to form in this competition are actually the Whitecaps. Gordy says it's like watching the live streams of VMSL games, watching these uh, games from Orlando. It is better quality, I'd, I'd have to say, in Orlando, but only just... So, just before we we go into the part of the show where it's just me talking, let everyone know where they can find you online, starting with the luchador himself, Steve O'Pando. Yeah, you can find me at WhitecapsBeat on Twitter. Uh, For me, you can find me on Twitter at ZacharyAM. And Stephen? You can check our podcast out at radio underscore Cascadia. Michael joins us frequently, which we're very, very grateful for. And I am grateful to have joined you guys tonight. Thank you so much. Pleasure to have you, Stephen. We're going to have this out in the podcast, but there's also going to be another two parts in the podcast. In part four, we're going to be talking sports science in this tournament. 
I got a chance to chat with Axel Schuster, Greg Vanny, Thierry Henry, Brian Schmetzer and Peter Vermees about sports science in this tournament, how they've seen things change over the years and variety of things like that. Then in the last part of the show, we're going to look a little bit into like the permutations for the, the groups still to come in the MLS's back tournament. And we'll also have Wavelength and the final part of our episodic drama, Wanted for Wembley. Hi, I'm Jake Nowinski and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off part four is the second of tonight's Three of a Kind songs. That was The Adverts and Gary Gilmore's Eyes, a single released in 1977, reached number 18 in the UK charts. It was a standalone single, but you can find it on a, a number of punk compilations and also in the reissues of the advert's debut album, Crossing the Red Sea. And the story behind the song is a fascinating one. It's about the American murderer, Gary Gilmore, who became the first man to be executed once the US brought back the death penalty in 1977. He actually took the US government to court for the right to be executed, which was his original sentence before it had been commuted to life in prison died by firing squad in Utah, which just seems a particularly barbaric way to die, especially in the 70s and in the US, but there we go. And what inspired the song is that Gary Gilmore left a number of his organs to organ donors after his death, and both of his corneas were used as a transplant and went to other people, hence looking through Gary Gilmore's eyes. Must be weird getting a, a transplant, being all happy about that, then waking up and finding that it's actually from a murderer. But there we go. The second of tonight's Three of a Kind songs. We had English punk band there, the adverts with Gary Gilmore's eyes. And kicking off part three, we had Canadian punk legends, SNFU, with tears. Have you worked out what the link might be yet? And if you have, what do you think our third and final song will be to kick off part five? Find out soon. But let's get back to some more football chat now. And in this part, I'm going to take a, a slight break from talking about the, the MLS is back tournament. 
Well, it's still related to the tournament, it's just not about the matches. Because in this part, I want to look at a subject that has fascinated me for a long time in football, but particularly in this tournament, and that is sports science. It's thrown about a lot in football circles these days, and the, the definition, as given in Wikipedia, is sports science is a discipline that studies how the healthy human body works during exercise and how sport and physical activity promote health and performance from cellular to whole body perspectives. So a lot of things to do with sports science is basically having a look at how players' bodies recover in certain environments, if they have certain sleep patterns, if they eat a certain way, if they eat certain things. Just a a whole load of, of different factors are involved It incorporates areas of physiology, anatomy, biomechanics, biochemistry and biokinetics. Now in recent years, more and more football teams have been putting a lot more stock into sports science. And for a tournament like MLS is back in Orlando, it's certainly getting worked a lot as teams are struggling with the hot temperatures, the humidity, having to change their body clock from going from, say, evening games to morning games to back to evening games and just everything that goes with that and just trying to get your body in the best peak physical condition to take part in these matches. So this past week, I've spoken to a number of people across MLS just to, to see how much they are relying on, on sports science during this tournament and the role it can help to have their teams to play at the peak physical condition that they need. So I'm going to bring you those in this part. So let's kick things off from a Whitecaps perspective. I asked Axel Schuster about this on Tuesday during his Zoom media conference call. With all the changes to the Whitecaps schedule, they've gone from arriving in Orlando thinking they had three matches at 10.30 at night planned their daily routine accordingly, planned their sleeping pattern, planned their eating pattern, planned their training pattern. Everything, all geared to these 10.30pm kickoffs. But, as we know, the best laid plans and the coronavirus kind of scuppered their chances of being able to do that. Their first game against Dallas was postponed, as the Texans side were withdrawn from the tournament. Then their scheduled second game, which had become their first game against San Jose Earthquakes on Wednesday evening, was brought forward an hour and a half, clearly for television purposes, as it was the only game that was on that night, following the postponement of 24 hours of the Canadian derby between TFC and Montreal. I mean, that affected their kind of schedule a little bit, but not too much, because the game kicked off at 9pm Orlando time, they'd been doing their training sessions at 9.30pm Orlando time, so... That wasn't a factor in their loss on Wednesday night. Neither were the conditions, as everyone was keen to point out. More just defensive breakdowns, but let's move on from that. We don't want to go over that game anymore. Their second game has stayed at the 10.30pm kickoff time locally. 7.30pm for us in Pacific that we saw on Sunday against the Sounders. But then a very quick turnaround. In three days' time... They've got to adjust their whole body clock to a 9am kickoff, 6am Pacific time, taking on Chicago in their last group game of the competition. And just everything that goes with that is a big change to, to the players' bodies and mental health and everything like that. So I asked Axel whether this tournament has kind of 
meant that he's had to rely more on sports science than in any other time of his career. So here's what he had to tell me. <sighs> Ooh, good question. No, not, not, not really. So yeah, maybe for most of our guys, um, yes. Uh, but if you play Champions League and you have to travel as well, and, and you play uh, also under totally different conditions. So you play in, in Turkey and it's way hot and you come back and play in Germany where it's still cold or, and you have a travel and the time we, we played Moscow and, and Porto in Champions League at the, in the same group stage, it was very different. And, and we had to travel and you had a away game after the away game. So in, in, in a shorter term, the, the thing, we also had there are time changes. The thing is, uh, it is, it is at all a special situation and the environment is very special and you have to adapt to that. But I think um, all the problems we are dealing with are not new problems. So maybe the combination of all of that uh, is special. But uh, there have, if we, if we play, I only want to give you an impression, if we would play a league game against Orlando and it would be the most important game in the season, uh, it would decide about going to the playoffs or not. We would go here two days before. We have to adapt to the heat. We have to adapt to a time change. So it's, it's something that's not totally new and we would have to travel two days before the game. Uh, it's the combination of, of all of that and that, you you stuck in in this environment and you you are you are not flexible to do all what you you want to do or would do with the tiny timings of trainings but it becomes better every day so at, at the moment where we where we got the news the new kickoff time for wednesday the league was very open to 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 reschedule things in our daily schedule um so yeah it's it's special but i would not say that it is more special or more complicated than than everything we did before uh it's it's only everything in real time very fast and together but um yeah no excuses no <laughs> uh for sure no excuses uh because as i said if we would play orlando in the most important game or miami we would go two days before and and we 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 could not also not use that as an excuse then so whitecaps sporting director and new ceo axel schuster giving us a little bit of insight into the, the sports science side of things from a, a Whitecaps perspective. And interesting to, to hear him talk about that it, all these kind of changes and time zones and different kind of temperatures and stuff. It, it is something he's come across before over in Europe with, with Champions League and Europa League stuff. But of course, a number of the players won't have had to go through anything like this at all. And I guess in some ways the Whitecaps have been quite lucky because their their matches, they've had two evening matches and they've just got the one change to make for the early morning match this coming Thursday against Chicago. Still not sure my body could adjust just in a, a couple of days, four days really, but technically you're, you're really just looking at three days. I'm also not very much of a morning person, so anything at 9am is not going to be good. Trying to get up at 6am to watch the match is also equally not good. Keeping in Canada though, or with the Canadian teams, Montreal Impact have been fortunate with their schedule. It hasn't changed too much. They had their opener on July 9th in a game that kicked off at 8pm Orlando time. That was a 1-0 loss to New England. Followed that up exactly a week later, so I mean they had a whole week's rest to kind of get used to things in between 
with that barn-burning 4-3 loss to Toronto this past Thursday, another game that kicked off at 8pm Eastern Time, and they round off their group games on Tuesday with a match against DC United, a match they have to win, but they don't have to do too much adjusting to their body clock routines or anything. I mean, that game is actually kicking off a little bit later. It's going to be kicking off at 10.30pm Eastern Time. But, I mean, it's certainly been evident that the heat, the humidity, the conditions are affecting a lot of teams more than other teams. I think the Canadian teams are at a big disadvantage during a a tournament like this. And I got a chance to to ask Thierry Henry just about how much he has been relying on sports science during this tournament and also how much he's seen things change really from his playing days and over the last couple of years. So let's hear now from Montreal Impact head coach Thierry Henry. I'd like to just ask you a a little bit about the sports science side of, of things. Now, obviously, everyone knows the conditions are quite bad, but is this the most you've had to rely on sports science as a coach in this tournament? And can you maybe talk a little bit about how different it is now to when you were actually playing the game? Listen, that's a very good question. Uh, I never came across anything like that before in my life. I said it before because you prepare for a tournament that's a competitive tournament. Teams arrive with different schedule. Teams arrive with different training uh, phase one, phase two, phase three. Because as we know, I'm not complaining so far because of uh, COVID-19. So to prepare is very difficult because teams are 10 days ahead. Some are two weeks behind. So it's very difficult. What do you do? You go straight into playing games. No, you cannot. You go straight into tactic. Usually you do that a bit later. You get those guys ready, then you get to the, to the tactic the tactic a bit after. You, you do some pattern of play, you do you do whatever you do, but you can't go to a, to the next level straight away. And that's what you have to do for this for this tournament while you're playing on the on the what you know, humidity and stuff. So then you bring the mental aspect part of the game where you are in a place where it's difficult to to take your mind of anything because you have to stay here. So all those little things, not only sports science, but being able to speak to the team and make sure that you 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 keep them focused on what they need to be focused on without being ready physically, it's it's very difficult. So yes, sports science was was a massive help. I didn't have sports science in my time, so it's very difficult to compare my time and 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 now. But it was vital to have those guys, and, and still it's still difficult because of the reason that we talked about. But don't underestimate also the mental aspect of the game, because staying in the same place for so long, for such a long time, while you're tired, it, it, it is not that easy. Not that easy at all. Thierry Henry there, talking to me about the sports science side of things and how it's been uh, affecting and implemented by Montreal. Like I mentioned, they're one of the teams that's been really fortunate in having all their games in the evening, so they haven't had to adjust things very much at all. Certainly not the case for the third of the Canadian sides, Toronto FC. I mean, what a what tournament they've had so far, just with arriving late and then getting their, their game against DC United pushed back, following positive tests, which then proved to be negative. They eventually got their tournament underway on Monday with that 2-0 draw with DC United, where they gave up two late goals, clearly flagged a little bit. That game kicked off at 9am Orlando time. Then they had to make a very quick adjustment, 
three days later, back on the pitch for an 8pm evening kickoff against Montreal. Didn't really seem to show any side effects as they, they ran out 4-3 winners in that fantastic game and certainly seemed to have a lot of energy and, and pep in their step. And then they also round off their tournament on Tuesday, but they've got a game again at 9am. So you're going from a morning game to an early evening game to a morning game again, all in the space of eight, nine days. And it's, frankly, it's ridiculous. They really needed to do something better with the schedule in this. What that could be doing to, to a player, I mean, who knows? The good thing from TFC is they already look to be through. They've got their four points on the board. That should be enough to get them into the knockout stages. Clearly, though, you want to win as many points as possible, not just for this tournament, but to carry forward into what might lie ahead for a a regular MLS season, or not, depending on what the case might be. But as with Axel Schuster and Thierry Henry, I put the question about sports science to, to Greg Vanny, when I got a chance to be on a call with him on Friday afternoon. And here's what he had to say about this subject. Well, I think our we got a lot of experience in Champions League. It was a slightly different experience, but we learned a lot of lessons during the 2018 Champions League run, uh, just on how sports science would play a role in, in all of this. It was, again, similar in that it was the beginning of a season. Players are still working themselves towards fitness. Uh, the variables were slightly different. We dealt with a lot of altitude then. Now we're dealing with a lot of heat and, and hydration issues, things like that. Um, but it, it's uh, it's something that we're definitely relying on in this in this uh, stage. But the guys have we have a lot of different tools to see where the guys are at. Uh, we have a lot of different tools that we're using to help guys recover, including you know uh, vests that they can wear to bring the body temperature down. We're doing hydration checks. We're doing weight checks. We're doing a lot of things to to follow up on the guys in terms of uh, you know where they're at we have a lot of different machines that we didn't even have a couple years ago or even a year ago to help us to get through and to manage through this so yes it's it's something that we are uh, we're heavily relying on and and getting feedback from uh, on a daily basis really on a a semi like half a day Uh, guys will come in for a check they'll come in again in the afternoon for another check so there's a lot of information on that side that's useful, but I do think our experience and everything that we went through through the Champions League has, has really helped us to, to make that department more robust and to gain more information through that process. So TFC head coach Greg Vanny there, giving some of his thoughts on sports science and how he's using it and implementing it at Toronto FC. And I don't know if other folk are as interested in this subject as I am, so I don't want to ram too much of this down your throat, but I want to bring you the last two little bits of audio that I gathered this week just now around the subject. I think it's interesting to get the different thoughts and approaches of clubs around the league. So we're going to hear now from two of the Whitecaps' Western Conference rivals. We're going to hear first of all from Peter Vermees from Sporting Kansas City, and then also from Brian Schmetzer from Seattle Sounders. So I've just put both of these together, and here's this, their thoughts on sports science, and it's used in this tournament, and just in, in general. Obviously, teams are playing at different times. Your third game's going to be a, a morning kickoff from early evening, can you just talk a little bit about how much you're having to rely on that side of things and maybe just how you've seen that change in the game over the last few years? 
Well, there's a principle, it's called SAID. It's an acronym, S-A-I-D. It stands for Specific Adaptations to Impose Demands. And basically the, the definition or the example of that would be is that if you're going to play, um, you know, in really, really hot weather, humid weather, you need to train in really hot, humid, humid weather. Fortunately, before we left, I mean, Kansas City wasn't, I mean, it, there were some days where it was really hot and, you know, it was humid. But then there were a lot of other days where it was overcast for, you know, a week, 10 days, and it was cooler out. Um, and so that had a big effect, I think, for us. I, I said from the get-go, teams like Houston, if Dallas was still here, the two, Orlando and Miami, Atlanta, those teams would have um, – they, they have an ability that was was uh, different than I think a lot of the other teams. I even think the two L.A. teams, you know, because it can get really hot. Now it's not, it's not the same heat. It's not humid. It's a little more dry. That would have a big effect um, uh, with different teams playing in the games. We, we obviously have to look at a lot of different things, but also, to your point, we're playing two games at 8 p.m., one at 9 a.m., where the difference is is that it's not like all of a sudden you can start training, you know, at 9 a.m. and then then train at 8 p.m. because the guy's clock's going to be all over the place. So we chose to kind of stay with our normal training time. We're actually training a little bit earlier than our normal training time, and the only reason being is because it's it, you kind of pick your poison. Um, so we usually train around eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, normally we train at 10 where the issue is, is if you train at the 10 30 time slot, a lot of times what happens is the, the thunderstorms here in, in Florida roll in. And so now your, your training session gets interrupted. And so which, which one do you want? You know, which inconvenience do you want? And so, um, it's still been very hot at eight o'clock. So I think we're still getting the kind of weather that we need. Um, but also our sessions aren't being interrupted. And, you know, I wouldn't say just for this tournament, but I would say for, you know, for a long time now, we've, we've used, um, you know, uh, the data as, as a real, um, uh, we use it as, as, as information to make good decisions in regards to our players. Um, and I think every team uses it pretty well and, and does a pretty good job with it. The thing that the thing that's always very difficult to um, to to measure, and you can't measure it with the physical data, is is where the guys are mentally. Um, you know, because it's it's a it's a different world down here. I mean, it's so, it's it's surrealistic in so many ways, right? Where it's all just soccer teams in a hotel. It's we go we go basically only time we can leave is we get on a bus and we go to the training uh, field and we come back. Uh, everywhere you are, you're a mask, you know, I mean, I, just yesterday was first time in probably like seven days that we, um, we kind of ate together again, um, a meal because normally we'd go in and just grab our meal and go back to your room. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. This is an individual sport like tennis or golf. This is a team sport. And these guys have had, have been around the team for, you know, the majority of their life it's kind of that camaraderie. It's that interaction that you have. And, you know, we've, we've missed that, you know, ever since the moratorium came in back in March. Um, 
and we started to get it back again when we were in Kansas City, went to full team training. And now we're back to this, you know, your individual. And, you know, there's times where you spend 20 hours in your room a day. That's, uh, that's not easy, I got to tell you. So I know I, I actually said a lot of other things in there, but it's, uh, yeah, it's not an easy one. How much have you had to rely on it in this tournament as opposed to like normal matches? And how have you seen that change in how you deal with games over the last couple of seasons? Well, I don't think it changes because look, there's midweek games in MLS. So, you know, when our game got changed to Chicago, you know, the Chicago game was a day earlier. You know, we played at nine o'clock at night, then nine in the morning. It shortened it even by another 12 hours. I mean, that's when your sports science department really kicks in. I mean, that's just, that's just normal. If we played on a Saturday, Wednesday, it's basically the same. It's the same program. You're, you're focused on just the physical recovery first. You might get a little bit of walkthrough tactics, something, you know, on a Tuesday prior to your Wednesday match. Uh, so, you know, coaches just can't coach as much. You have to do the work in the classroom with film and other vehicles to give them the instruction that you want. It's just not always out on the field because the stuff that they do on the field is just all recovery work. So the thoughts of KC head coach Peter Vermees and Sounders head coach Brian Schmitz are there around sports science. You'll probably be glad to know that that's my final bits of audio to do with sports science from this episode. Hopefully you found it as fascinating as I had asking the questions this week. If it is something you'd like to know more about or like us to delve into a little bit more, let, let me know because I wouldn't mind sitting down with some of the people connected with the Whitecaps They've got a number of different people. You've got John Pauley, who's the head of physical preparation. But then they also have a head physiotherapist, a head of performance data science, applied performance scientists. So there's a lot of work goes into that aspect of it at the club. And if you want, we can do some more chats about this and delve into exactly how the Whitecaps do and what they do with the data and what they collect and stuff like that. But before we get back to chatting about the MLS's back tournament, we're going to round off this part with this week's wavelength. I was disgusted with myself last week because in my rush to try and get out a timely show, which I had to re-record several times in the process, I neglected to put in a wavelength. I don't know, it's unforgivable, but we'll make up for it this week. And we've got a special tune to celebrate a special moment this weekend. Leeds United, I've mentioned this on the show before, they're a team, I don't know why, I just don't like them. But even me, I have to admit and doff my cap to say well done to Marcello Bielsa and his Leeds United team. They were the class team all season long basically in the, the championship. After a couple of close calls, near misses, they finally not only secured their place back in the Premier League after a 16 year absence... They are also championship champions for the 2019-20 season. And it has been very well deserved. They've played some fantastic football under Bielsa this year. So this week's wavelength is to pay tribute to Marcello Bielsa. It's a man, a coach that Mark DeSantis has talked to us before about how much he admires him. 
It's going to be good fun, I think, watching him coach in the Premier League next year. So to celebrate all of this, we're going to bring you a song from 2019 by singer-songwriter Paul Wilson. It's all about Bielsa and it's called The King of Elland Road. Yorkshire comes the mad to end our years of torture from the darkness we're rising to our feet well each united England's early Marcelo Wilson there with his 2019 song The King of Elland Road You can find that on YouTube You can find it on Amazon And other places where you can buy MP3s If you so wish But as I said my grudging congratulations to Leeds United Champions for this season Who's going to be champions of the MLS's back tournament Still a long way for that to go The group games wrap up this week Then we get into the knockout phase Which should be pretty exciting And we're going to look a little bit more into what is coming up this week ahead in the next part. And we'll be back with that. And also the final part of our episodic drama serial, Wanted for Wembley, right after this. Hi, I'm Ryan Raposo and you're listening to the AFT 
Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part was also the final song in tonight's Three of a Kind. The wonderful Half Man Half Biscuit with Dickie Davies' Eyes. Released as a single in 1986, it reached number 86 in the main UK singles charts and it reached number one in the UK indie charts. You can also find it on the band's second album, Back Again in the DHSS, released in 1987. And the, the song is a homage, piss take, whatever you want to call it, of Kim Carnes's early 80s classic, Betty Davies' Eyes. Dickie Davis, for anyone that doesn't know, was a UK television presenter, presented a lot of sports programmes back in the day. Perhaps best known for having a weird little white patch in his hair. Certainly a staple of my Saturday afternoon sports viewing before I headed along to watching matches on my own. And an icon in television broadcasting. But we didn't play it solely for telling you that story. Although another fun story about that song... In a, a part which I didn't include there, it's in like the early part of the song, and there's a, a line in the song about the legendary commentator Brian Moore, which goes, Brian Moore's head looks uncannily like London Planetarium, and that line actually gave the name to a Gillingham FC fanzine back in the day. Fanzine which ourselves at AFTN swapped a few issues with over the years, and it's just one of those cult fanzines from back when football culture was very, very different. But enough of me waffling on about that. I'm sure you all want to know, if you haven't guessed already, what the link is with this week's Three of a Kind. Well, we kicked off part three with Canadian punk legends SNFU and a song called Tears, taken from their album Better Than a Stick in the Eye. Kicking off part four, we had the adverts with Gary Gilmore's eyes and kicking off this final part, it was Half Man, Half Biscuit with Dickie Davis eyes. The link, fairly easy, I think, this week. It was eyes. You had the tears coming from eyes and talking about watery eyes and that SNFU song, also from an album with eye in the title, and then two more tracks with eyes in the title. Did you get this week's link? Hopefully you did. And whether you did or not, we'll be back with another three of a kind in next week's show. 
Now we recorded the first four parts of this episode on Sunday, July 19th. I wanted to wait until Monday to record this part, just to to keep it fresher and have all the up-to-date news. And we'll delve into what lies ahead this week in the remaining group games of MLS is back very shortly. But before that, I do want to play a bit of audio that I didn't get a chance to listen to until Monday morning. Someone sent me a message saying, you really need to listen to Brian Schmetzer's press conference after the Whitecaps game. And boy, you certainly do. Second question of the press conference was from Jeremiah O'Shan from SB Nation. And it did not go down well with Schmetzer. Let's just play that for you now. Hey, Brian, uh, someone suggested that it looked like you guys might not really want to be here based on the first two performances. Uh, what do you think this this match uh, looked like? Who said that? Uh, I don't I You know, I, I'm not quite sure who actually said that. <laughs> Are you trying to get me upset, Jeremiah? We just won a good game. Team played well. I mean, we always try and win every single freaking game that we play the first game I thought we played okay San Jose is a tough team you saw them tonight Chicago might have yes fell flat hot possess the ball too much you know some giveaways tonight against look Vancouver was depleted felt bad for Mark in some some instances and you know tonight things came together for us and we won a game it has nothing to do whether we want to stay here or not, whether we want to come home or not. It's every single game of this club we want to win. Simple as that. End of story. You know. Next question. So a very pissed off Brian Schmitz are there. And for the remainder of the press conference, which was about another six minutes, he was very terse, very prickly, gave really short answers to most of the questions. And I can't blame him, really. It's a bit of a stupid question to have asked, especially when you can't back up by saying who it was that was talking about it to begin with. I mean, any coach, whether it is true that they didn't want to be down in Orlando or not, is not going to sit there and admit that that was the case. Anyway, the first part of the tournament has only a few more days to go. There's four more days of group games, including today, Monday. And there was a very important game took place on Monday morning that could impact what happens with the Whitecaps in this tournament. That was one of the main reasons that I wanted to wait and record this bit. It was the game between Inter-Miami and New York City FC. Pretty boring game. Anyone that got up early to watch that one, I'm pretty sure they fell back asleep again pretty quickly. 1-0 win in the end to New York City FC. Moves them to third place in the group standings on three points and a goal difference of minus two. What that means for the Whitecaps is if they were to beat Chicago by the minimum amount needed, which is two goals, it would move them to three points and a goal difference of minus two. But they would have the tiebreaker on New York City FC for having scored more goals. So if they get the first part of their job done, Beating Chicago by that minimum amount, more than two, would be even better. Then that's one of the teams that could possibly take their playoff berth out of the equation altogether. So they just need to be better than one more team in that case to advance to the knockout round. How doable is that? Well, let's dig into some of that just now. 
In Group C, the placings are very much up for grabs. TFC and New England both have four points from the first two games and they meet on Tuesday. And the third and fourth place teams, DC and Montreal, also meet on Tuesday. Right now, DC have two points and a zero goal difference. Montreal, no points and a minus two goal difference. So let's just say Montreal won by a single goal in that game. That would move them into third place on three points, but give them a goal difference of minus one, meaning the Whitecaps would need to score three or more goals against Chicago to jump them in the best third place team standings. A taller order for sure than just getting the two goal victory that they're already looking for. Also, after the first two games, it feels like it might be a a tall order for Montreal. DC, unbeaten in the tournament, have drawn both their games. Montreal improved from Game 1 to Game 2. And I got a chance to to speak to Samuel Piet on Sunday in the the pre-game presser that they had. So I asked him what he feels Montreal has learned from those two first matches as a team, both in terms of this tournament and what they can then take forward into whatever happens in the remainder of the MLS season. So here's what Samuel had to tell me. I think what we've learned and and that's something we were doing you know before the pandemic is we were a team that was fighting and you know we were on the front foot and we wanted to you know control the game and i think against new england we didn't do that uh, i think we were a bit you know too too low in our in our, in our zone uh we were not you know pressing uh the opponent we were not you know, looking to, to win the ball back. We were just waiting for things to happen, basically. And I think against Toronto, we corrected that and we had more success. Um, so going forward, you know, into that last game and, and going forward in the season or the few, the, the next year, uh, we want to be a team that impose, you know, the rhythm. We want to be a team that's on the front foot, you know, aggressive with a lot of intensity in everything we do. And so I think that's what we've learned in in the last two games. So Samuel Piet there, and definitely Montreal had improved from game one to game two. That wouldn't be hard because they didn't really show much fight or spirit really in that first game against New England. They certainly did show it against TFC. What will happen in the game against DC? Well, we'll find that out on Tuesday. That game gets underway at 7.30pm Pacific time, so a great time to watch that one. Looking forward to it, actually. And it doesn't look like the Whitecaps will jump whichever team finishes third in that group. I think it's probably unlikely that they will also jump above whoever finishes third in Group D. Right now, RSL and Minnesota have four points, KC have three, Colorado have zero, and a goal difference of minus three whereas KC's goal difference is zero. Now, KC play RSL on Wednesday. A KC win, and the top three all finish with more points than the Whitecaps. An RSL win could get interesting because it could send KC's goal difference down. If they lose by two or more goals, then again, if the Whitecaps were to win by two, they would be better than KC in terms of goals scored during the tournament, in all probability anyway. Colorado Rapids, now if they were to beat Minnesota by two or more goals, then again the Whitecaps would have to score three or more 
to be better than them in the third place standings. So it's possible that things will work out for the Whitecaps in that group, but I'm not too sure. I definitely, though, would have eyes on what's happening in Group E and Group F. Right now in Group E, Columbus Crew through to the knockout round. New York Red Bulls are second on three points. Cincinnati are third on three points. And Atlanta are last on zero points. Red Bulls and Cincinnati meet on Wednesday. Have to fancy the Red Bulls for that one. That would take them out of sight of the Whitecaps. And would certainly put Cincinnati as a team that the Whitecaps could overtake in third if they get that two-goal victory or more. The only spanner in the works with this one is Atlanta taking on Columbus on Tuesday. Now, Atlanta's fighting for their lives. Now, if Atlanta were to win that one, unlikely, I think, that the Whitecaps would overtake them in the third-place standings, bar a three-or-more-goal victory. So keep an eye on that. And in Group F, you've got the third and the fourth-place teams battling it out for third. Houston taking on the LA Galaxy. The way that things have gone so far, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a draw on that one. A Galaxy win by anything but a big margin would allow the Whitecaps to overtake them if they get their two or more goal victory. Houston win, then the Whitecaps can't catch them. A draw suits the Whitecaps as well. That game, though, takes place after the Whitecaps have taken on Chicago. So that could be very interesting. If it all came down to that, and the teams knew exactly what they had to do going into it, then that could be a very interesting game to watch for Whitecaps fans. Is all of this a flight of fancy? Do the Whitecaps have any chance at all? Well, although it might not feel like they do, it's a two-stage process. They have to get past Chicago. They have to get past them by at least two goals. And I'm, I'm calling it right now. If they do that part of it, I think they will get through to the knockout round. That, of course, is a big if. They really have to work on where the goals are coming from and they really have to tighten up that defence. Very, very much tighten up that defence. But it's going to make for an exciting four days of action in the group stages anyway. Really looking forward to it. The only concern I kind of have now during all of this is, are the pitches going to hold up till the end of the tournament? They're starting to look a little bit threadbare. There are three pitches that can be used for the tournament. Primarily, they're only using the one just now. And it's starting to get a little bit worse for wear. Is there concern over that? I asked KC head coach Peter Vermees that. He doesn't think so, but here's what he did have to say. I hope so. I hope so. I know they have they have three of them. They have three fields that they've 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 put out for games. And so um we've been playing on really the one. So I think they're gonna eventually switch, I think. And then you'll play another one and let that kind of recover and then you go to another one and let that another one recover. And so I'm hoping that's what it's it's going to be. Um, but they've been good so far. I haven't, I haven't, you know, I haven't experienced it being poor at the moment. So, you know, I've been here many times and I know what kind of traffic these fields get. So uh, I think that part will be okay. I, I, my impressions are that it's been, it's been, uh, it's been really interesting in a lot of ways. Um, it's just funny because, you know, everybody's, I think, managing it very similarly, all the teams, um, whether it's training games, what have you. And, um, you know, everybody's just trying to put their best foot, best foot forward. So Peter Vermees, they're not concerned about the pitches kind of breaking up anymore because they do get a lot of use all year round. 
I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how the next couple of days play out in the tournament. We'll chat about all of that in next Sunday's show. There's no football action to take in at all on Friday before the knockout round gets underway on Saturday. Now, no matter what, the Whitecaps would not be in action on Saturday, but they could be in action in one of the two Sunday games where they might end up taking on the Group C winner or the Group D winner if they were to advance. As things are looking just now, I think I would probably prefer Group D. But even with that, you feel it's a tall order. But if the Whitecaps did manage to pull this out of the bag, did get through to the knockout rounds, for me, that's a giant success, all things considered. Anything after that, it's just the icing on the cake. And you know me, I love my cake. Well, that is pretty much it for this week's AFTN Soccer Show. But we can't go and leave you in the lurch without bringing you the final part of our episodic drama serial taken from the pages of the 1958 Roy of the Rovers album. Here is the fourth and final part of Wanted for Wembley. Milton Rangers had reached their first ever FA Cup final. Standing in their way to glory were the experienced Hardwick City. But any cup final dreams had turned into a nightmare and they trailed 2-0 at half-time. The big difference seemed to be Milton Rangers star striker Jack Rush was forced to play in a new pair of football boots after they were mistakenly packed away instead of his old, trusty, faithful ones he had worn for a number of years. Those football boots seemed to be a good luck charm and without them, Jack Rush was not playing well. The reason the boots were missing was down to kit man and apprentice footballer Robbie Rennick. Young Robbie had packed away the new boots and taken the old pair home thinking that the old and tattered boots were going to be thrown out and no longer useful to Jack Rush. That couldn't of course be further from the truth and when a radio broadcast revealed exactly how important these boots were to Jack Rush, Robbie Rennick faced a race against time to get the boots to Wembley Stadium to try and turn around Milton Rangers Cup final. He'd managed to get there in the first half but no one would let him into the stadium. Eventually finding a way in, he made his way into the Milton Rangers locker room, handed the boots to Jack Rush, and everyone now just hoped for a miracle in the second half. Can Milton do it? Can they turn around the two-goal deficit? Will this be the difference to turning Jack Rush from zero to hero? Find out in our thrilling final instalment of Wanted for Wembley by Harry Clint. You'd better come with me, lad. You can sit on the touchline bench with the trainer and me, said Milton manager Walter Jarvis. The rest was like a dream to Robbie. Keeping close to the manager, he passed along the tunnel and climbed up the long incline onto the pitch. For a moment he paused, catching his breath as he stared out over the great historic arena where the teams were moving into position for the start of the second half. Hardly had Robbie squatted on the bench in front of one of the large Wembley stands than Hardwick went away at a cracking pace. Bouncing with confidence, two goals up, they felt that the cup was almost theirs. But they were in for a shock. The second half was destined to be one of the most memorable ever seen on the famous turf. Hardwick made the early mistake of almost ignoring Jack Rush. 
His failure to bring off anything in the first half had betrayed them into thinking he was not a danger. It was a fatal mistake. A few minutes after the restart, Jack Rush burst into action. His speed took him past the opposing centre half. With dazzling ball control, he swerved to avoid first one tackle and then another. Robbie watched the centre forward's twinkling feet in breathless excitement. Jack Rush was a new man. The change of boots had brought about a transformation. This was the real Jack Rush. Deft, speedy and supremely confident. The Hardwick goalie was caught off his guard. Unprepared for Jack Rush's sudden burst, he hesitated, uncertain whether to stay on the line or come out. Then he started, and the instant he moved, Jack Rush shot. The goalie hurled himself sideways, but Jack Rush had aimed the ball wide of his outflung hands. It sizzled past him and into the net. The whole stadium went mad. Or at least, the Milton Rangers half. Robbie was jumping up and down in a dance of wild excitement. Even the manager leapt from his seat. Something close to panic swept through Hardwick as they kicked off again. They were scared to open up the game and launch an attack for fear that it would give the Rangers a chance to equalise. They pulled back and packed their own half, determined to hang on to the one goal lead with which they still held. The Rangers went for them. Jack Rush became a darting, weaving, bewildering menace. Every time he put a foot on the ball, the opposition was in a frenzy. Every move he made had the touch of the master craftsman. Milton constantly fed Jack Rush and the Hardwick goalie was just as constantly on the move between the posts with shots thundering at him from all angles. He made save after save, leaping to catch the ball, flinging himself at it, beating it down, punching it out, banging it over the bar or round the post for corner after corner. For 15 minutes he survived a furious bombardment. Then, from yet another corner... Jack Rush leaped to get his head to the ball and brilliantly nodded it down just inside the post. The fans yelled their lungs out. Milton's scarves and hats were hurled into the air while the Hardwick supporters looked stunned. With the scores now level at two apiece, Milton kept up their pressure, determined to snatch the lead. But by desperate tackling and several slices of luck, Hardwick held out until Milton's forwards, having almost run their legs off, began to flag. It was Hardwick's chance to hit back. Now it was the tiring Rangers who were under bombardment and in trouble. A sizzling shot that just grazed the crossbar with the goalie beaten made the supporters gasp and hold their breath. Almost immediately afterwards, another flashing shot thudded off the upright and was scrambled away. The minutes were flying past. Any moment now, the final whistle would blow. Then came the biggest moments of the match, ever to be remembered by all those who saw it. The Rangers' goal was being hammered. A high-booted clearance dropped towards the centre circle where Jack Rush was standing. He trapped it and was away like a cyclone. He was tackled and sidestepped out of the way. Keeping the ball close to his toes, Jack Rush raced down the field. The Hardwick left-back, a burly giant, came forward to tackle him. Jack kept him guessing for a few seconds. Then, with the ball under perfect control, Jack passed the back and dashed into the penalty area. The spectators were wild with excitement. And then, a tremendous roar went up as Jack shot. Robbie watched with bated breath. The ball sped low towards the corner of the goal, but the Hardwick goalie was first class. Flinging himself sideways, he grabbed the ball, and with a single-handed throw, cleared to a back, who kicked the ball well upfield. Robbie groaned with dismay. Just at that moment, he had seen the referee glancing at his watch. It was just a matter of minutes to full time. The Rangers had got to score and fast. For a few seconds, things looked bad for Milton. 
The Hardwick forwards carried the ball right into their opponent's penalty area and an all-out battle started in front of the Rangers' goalmouth. But the Hardwick players were given no time to shoot and Rangers' centre-half took possession of the ball with a brilliant tackle, passing the ball out to the wing. The Rangers' right winger snapped up the ball and sent across a quick pass to Jack Rush and Jack again was off like a shot. The Hardwick centre-half blocked his path but with a flick of his boot, Jack passed him and raced on down the pitch. Two men closed in on him and he went between them like a thunderbolt. Out came the goalie, diving recklessly at his feet. Jack hooked the ball out of the reach of his clutching fingers and walloped it over him and into the back of the net. It was the winning goal. Melton had done it. Goal Melton. Melton. Good old Jack. He deserves a medal. A deafening roar went up from the crowd, packed like sardines into the gigantic stadium. No sooner had they kicked off again than the whistle blew. It was all over. Milton had staged a fantastic comeback, all thanks to hat-trick hero Jack Rush and his trusty old pair of boots. When the cup and the medals had been presented, Robbie found himself back in the dressing room with the hilarious and victorious team. For a time, no one took any notice of Robbie. Everybody was too busy congratulating the players. But suddenly... Jack Rush let out a shout and tore himself free of his teammates. Wait, everybody, he cried. Let's not forget Robbie. If he hadn't brought my old boots, we'd never have won the cup. Come on, Robbie, up on the table where everyone can see you. Three cheers for Robbie. Hip hip, hooray. Hip hip, hooray. Hip hip, hooray. And as Robbie was hoisted up into full view of everyone in the crowded Wembley dressing room, he knew that no matter how far he might progress in his own football career, he would never have a prouder moment than this. Well done, Robbie Rennick. Well done, Jack Rush, and well done, Milton Rangers. We will be back with another episodic drama serial in the coming weeks. Just trying to decide what one I want to do next. If you've enjoyed these, though, let me know. If you find them boring, also let me know. Always keen to get some feedback on these weird and wacky segments that we do. But that is it for this week's AFT and Soccer Show now. Thank you, as always, for listening. I've been Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Give us a follow on Instagram at AFTN Soccer. And perhaps most importantly, make sure you subscribe and like and turn on notifications to AFTN's YouTube channel. So it's youtube.com backslash AFTN Canada. That way you will be kept up to date with any of these live post-game shows that we're doing. We've been enjoying the, the couple that we've done so far. So we hopefully will do a few more of these over the course of the year. Also got some videos which I'll be uploading this week, just from some of the chats I've had around the league during this tournament. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And of course, as I mentioned, the best way to find out when we've got anything is to subscribe and turn on notifications. Also, if you do enjoy this show, it'd be good if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes. That would also be very useful to the show. I'll bid my farewell now. Thanks as always for listening. Have a good week. 
Take care and mon the caps. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. Ooh. Mm-hmm.